Hello, welcome to The One Inch Barrier. I am your host, Juan Carlos Ojano. And before we go on, I hope you're all staying safe and staying healthy and staying at home. So, yeah, there you go. And for today, we are going to talk about the film that won Best Foreign Language Film at the 85th Academy Awards. That film is Abur, written and directed by Mikhail Haneke. So this was Austria's second win and fourth nomination. And this film is about Anne and Georges, an old couple living together in an apartment. So one morning, Anne suffers from a silent stroke. She gets an operation, but it just made things worse. And she suddenly became paralyzed on her right side. So with Anne not wanting to go back to the hospital or to go into care, George is left to take care of her as her physical condition gets worse. So that's a quick summary of Amour. So our guest for today is from Germany, Deutschland. He is a blogger at Fritz and the Oscars. So please welcome Fritz. Hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me. And thank you so much for coming on board. Before we go on, uh, can you tell our listeners where can they find you and your work? Um, yeah, sure. So... As you already said, so you can find my blog. Um, it's Fritz and the Oscars, um, where I uh, very sporadically um, publish reviews on Best Actress nominated performances. And you can also find me on Twitter at, at Fritz and Oscars, where I also tweet about everything movies, Oscars, and politics. So always happy if you would like to follow me. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. And I've already said this to you a while ago, but you're one of the first bloggers that I really followed in my starting years as an Oscar fan. And you have really inspired me to follow films and award season and best actress and all that stuff, um, culminating in going to film school. <laughs> so, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your passion about the best actress and the Oscars. Yeah. yeah. Oh, th thank you so much. Uh, very nice. And, uh, of course, you already said that you were very young when you started this, so you might be how old I am. <laughs> because I was I was not so young when I started blogging, but uh, it's always nice to know that uh, people followed um, and, and like to read what I, I wrote. So thank you so much for this. Yeah. So let's now go to the film at hand. Uh, let's start with general uh, thoughts. What do you think of Amour? Um, so in general, well, uh, um, by the way, I try to speak uh, very slowly today because I learned that in the past I speak very fast. So if I try, if I speak too fast, then just uh, tell me. Um, well, Amour, it's a perfect movie for a first date, obviously. <laughs> um, but joking aside, um, I think it's it's a great movie. It's a very hard to watch movie. Um, it's great. It's it has great performances in it. I think it, it has a very simple story, but what I like very much about it is that it still never feels slow or in some way indulgent. It, it moves along very well. Um, very happy that it got the Best Director nomination because I think Haneke has a very certain style with this movie that you notice, but it never feels indulgent. And yet yeah, it's, it's a very tough to watch movie because of the story like another movie in the in the category that year i think there are two movies that were very hard to watch and uh, yeah this is one of those um so what do you <laughs> so th those are just my my general first thoughts and we go into more details but what, what are your general thoughts on it i think amour is just a heartbreaking film you, you, you've said it that it's a very tough film to watch and and it is tough emotionally because 
of what's going on with the characters. But one thing that I also noticed is that it's it's not asking for those tears. It is unsentimental. Um, it is also quite distant. You know, there's a lot of wide shots and it doesn't even have music. So it was never really trying to actively manipulate you into crying or feeling sad. But at the same time, it is very true to the situation of of suffering that these characters are going through. So that's why um, <laughs> you've said it's hard to watch. But for me, I know it's heavy on the heart. But for some ways, I feel catharsis every time I watch it. I don't know about does that make me weird <laughs> like um um and would you, would you would you call this film cold? Um no no I wouldn't call it cold but I think you're totally right that it's not overly emotional so I think it's very it's a it has a very matter of fact quality it sometimes feels a little bit like a documentary you you do get involved I think with these people, but you're always keeping a distance. And I think that's also because the characters themselves are not overly sentimental. So this, this marriage between these two people, you, you, you sense that they have been together very long, but even though the film is called Amour, you never have to, they are never obviously very romantic with each other or very loving, but I think um, you get the sense of their love simply out of their actions and out of the way they are interact with each other and you see how familiar they are with each other so I, I, when i watched it i thought it was a little bit like a dark on golden pond um but in on golden pond with Catherine Hepburn and henry fonda they are they are much more sentimental and there is much more of these sentimental overtones in the movie and i think amour doesn't have this so it it's there is always a little bit of a distance, but I wouldn't call it cold. I, I would simply say that that's a very specific style of filmmaking that we see here. And I think maybe you co could call it a, a realistic style of filmmaking. Also the way the film is shot. So the camera, what I noticed with the movie, the camera hardly ever moves. So it always is, it has its focus on something and it stays there. Even when a person goes out of the, out of the frame, the camera doesn't follow that person, but instead you hear the person talking out of frame. So it's almost a little bit like the camera is set up accidentally and just watches these people. And I think the interactions are always very real. So they have been married for a very long time. They know each other. They don't need to tell each other all the time. Oh, I love you. Or they don't need to cry all the time. They have a very matter of fact attitude about the whole thing that is happening to them. Not only the, 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 the couple, but also their daughter. And I think the way they talk to each other, the way they handle the situation, is how people in real life would probably have the situation. And, and they don't have these big scenes like you have in a movie where something big happens or they have some big revelation or they have them, some big monologue. The plot just happens. And I think this is why it might feel a little bit cold, but I, but I don't think it is. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, there is like an irony to this film called Love and Men. When you watch the film, there, there are no big professions of love. And yet, you know that these two characters are in love with each other and they care for one another. And the love is very much still in that relationship. I would agree with you that this film, it really requires your involvement because it never really gives away everything easily. I think it requires patience and attention because it feels like 
going back to Hanukkah's directing style, every shot, how it how it never cuts, how actors are blocked, it feels so deliberate. And yet it's natural to the story. And that is a very distinct way of telling the story. Um, I would also agree that this is like... Um, the very direct opposite of on golden pond that is like sentimentality on steroids. <laughs> I mean, everything about this, everything about that film wants to make you cry. <laughs> and then you have, um, Amour, which is quite the opposite. It just puts you in this, um, vantage point of observing this couple who doesn't need to say, um, love, 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 in their relationship, it just shows in their daily actions that might seem mundane and uh, what do you call this? Maybe uh, insignificant, but there is a lot of uh, love suggested in the routine that they have built for one another. That's why when the sickness um, comes, it really slowly shakes their relationship. And yeah, I would not call, call this film cold. Um, there is so much emotional investment in this story, but it's never giving everything away. Um, what do you think of the fact that aside from the opening sequence, you know, when they went to the concert and they were traveling, all of the scenes are within the apartment and we actually go out in the hallway just once. So it's very much a very confined, like realist domestic drama how do you think of what do you think of that choice mm, i think that works very well because it really helps us to just focus on these two people and obviously after um emmanuel rivers character i just have to quickly look up um, n after she has um her stroke obviously her life is refined to this up to her apartment the mm -hmm. uh, she probably doesn't i mean she, you know at the beginning she has the wheelchair she probably could Go out, she probably could go out with the wheelchair, but I think probably her kind of character, the way she's presented, um, she probably prefers to stay inside in the situation. And so everything just happens there. And since she is always at home, he, his life also simply focuses on, on this apartment and their place. And I think it just helps to understand and show how their life is changed by all of this at the beginning when you see them at the concert and just the way they are presented as a couple you get a sense that they are both very intellectual people and of course she uh, having her whole back, uh, pianist background and that they are the kind of couple that goes out into museums or concerts or lectures and stuff like this you just get the sense that this is something that they would do and you just shows you how her stroke simply affects their whole life and everything only happens inside this apartment and suddenly everything is about helping her to get to the toilet, helping her to take a shower, feeding her, um, helping her to drink and simply seeing how it, her situation gets worse and worse. So I think this whole um, keeping everything inside the apartment and not showing what is happening outside, but simply having every, also having all the other characters come to them, I think gives it a more realistic feeling. Yeah, and I like that, I like that they stuck with it. I think um, 
I think this is not really something that a lot of people are interested in because I think when we talk about films about love and talks about relationship and romance, there's a lot of it involves like a lot of movement and going out and we never really see a lot of films exploring relationships confined in a single space and how they are explored deeply like for example there's a lot when the when she was finally confined in the house and it was all up to george to take care and handle the situation and take care of her um there's a lot of character work that this film does in terms of nuances and relationship dynamics and there's in the suggestion of a history of a relationship I so love that it it really like illustrated like this is a couple that has had a lifetime of relation of being together and it shows in all of it shows in their uh, everyday life moments like uh, breakfast and the cleaning it just um it does a, the film does a lot of character work um the film doesn't have big plot points but at the same time there is a steady progression like there's an inevitable pain <laughs> that's coming what do you think of this um style of writing to really dwell into these small moments and into these daily life conversations um yeah um well i i think this also, this uh, what you just mentioned that there are these small scenes and that may seem insignificant. I think this again works very well because it again, for me, shows this specific directing style and and making of this movie style that makes it sometimes seem a little bit like a documentary because when they they sometimes have these kind of conversations that don't have a bigger impact on the whole story. That's again, it's just how people talk. Um, I think at the end of the story, when he tells her, I think we can probably spoil the movie, or do you? Yeah. <laughs> before, um, we go into spoilers in this yeah. one. <laughs> so before her, um, I don't want to say kills her, but uh, so I don't know the, the other English word. Um, basically, um, euthanize. Euthanize. Yeah, sorry. Before before he euthanizes her, um, and he tells her the story when he was small and he was at this. Um, his parents sent him away for a holiday. So this whole story, it, I don't think there's any bigger meaning in the story. Again, it's just something that he tells her because it happened to him. And again, it just, it's just this, this part of life and just uh, another aspect. And I think there's an early, another early scene where he tells us, he tells her something I, at, at the breakfast table. I actually forgot what it was. Um, I think it was about an Counter he had with a woman at some point when he was smaller, but again, it's it's not. Um, uh, it's hard for me to express it. It's not um, some. It, it doesn't have a deeper meaning. It, it's not that he they talk to each other and they and every scene that they appear in each other has some deeper meaning that we have to think about it. They just have normal conversations and talk about things that happen to them in their life. And I, again, I think this is um, something that works really well in the construct of this how the story is constructed and gives it this more realistic feeling just again like the camera that's just set up and just films things that are happening so the whole movie is very lifelike and organic and i think it's very well paced so as i said it's a very simple story and not a lot of things are actually happening there 
apart from her decline, but it never feels slow or boring. So I think that's very, that's again another point where I think the movie is very well made. Yeah, I actually want to go to what you said about it. Like they talk about things that might seem insignificant or doesn't have deeper meaning. I think that really makes our characters relatable or like that's our way in is when we have these um, like seemingly random stories and it just shows that these are actual human beings that talk about random stuff in life. And like you said, it's it's just organic. It just comes... It just it just feels right that this is how the film was made, how this film was written, and how it moves. And the impact of the film is not on the small moments per se, but on the accumulation of all of those details that really plot the character's journey together. Um, this film is very specific and calculated, I would think, uh, I would say, and how it moves, there is a very distinct pacing to it. Um, what do you think of its pacing? Mm, I think the pacing works very well. Um, the movie has a very certain flow so that we watch them from at the beginning, from being this normal older couple um, to her first stroke, to the situation getting more serious, to her being in a wheelchair, to her and having another stroke and simply watching her decline until until her death at the end. And I think this is a very logic story that moves from point A to point Z and covers everything in between, but it never feels forced. So you have her, their daughter coming in, talking to them about the situation. You have um, the pianist coming in and visiting them. You have the you have the different nurses that are coming, so you watch simply what is happening to them. And even so, even if you don't know how the movie is ending because you're just watching the movie and don't and haven't read about it yet, but you you still know what will happen at the end, so that she will die at the end, so in some way or another. And but it's not like you're waiting for this. You're just, you're watching the story and see how everybody is dealing with this. And I think this. Pace and, and so in this way, I think the pacing of the movie works very well. So even even so, the movie has a looks very. I think it's the movie looks very simple at a, at a certain point because the camera is just there and watches what they are doing. It doesn't feel very big. There are no grand special effects. There are no sweeping images. There's not a very dramatic score or stuff like this. But it's still on a technical movie making level. I think the movie is it's, it's still a, I think an excellent piece of filmmaking. Yeah, I would agree with you. And I just had a thought <laughs> what you mentioned right now. I think, I think, and of course we're not like not really talking about the actual realistic specifics of filmmaking, but it feels like this film could be made now just because it's all set inside the houses and it's all confined. But yet again, even if it was confined physically in this apartment, there is a very distinct way of storytelling that Hanukkah does in this film and it's all well thought of and it's never lazy because I think it's really that's why I think quiet films are really hard to make because it's hard to sustain a certain level of interest and progression when you have long stretches like this and it's not just long stretches of quietness or mundane events this are 
wide shots, a lot of wide shots, a lot of unbroken takes, camera not moving for a lot of the shots, but yet it all works in a way that it doesn't feel lazy. It doesn't feel lazily executed. It feels like there is a very specific rhythm, not just in the editing, but on how everything comes together within a single shot. I mean, we would, uh, I would remember scenes of them just talking and then bouncing off each other. Or like maybe when George has his um, daughter visit him for the first time, for the whole scene, it's a wide shot. We only see like Isabella Bear's front and then Jolie Trantignon's profile, back profile. And that's just a scene, but yet it tells so much about these characters and it makes you really care about what's going on without the usual trappings of, you know, when you say like, how do you make a film so involving? Like you go to close-ups, you go to music. None of that are here but at the same time it works the same it it involves you into the story yeah definitely i also think the scene when when the couple is introduced at the beginning when they are at this concert and you see them in the audience and the camera captures the whole audience and we don't focus on them so if you don't know that these two are the leading players you wouldn't even notice them because you see the whole audience for like probably a minute or something like this just sitting there and waiting for the concert to start and I think this already gives the movie, this tells you already the style of the movie, but it's already very involving. Or um, I remember another scene when they are having breakfast and he is talking, but he has his back to the camera. So you, you don't even see him, but he's the one who's talking all the time while she is um, boiling the eggs for the breakfast in, in the foreground. And again, the camera just uh, observes them, how they are doing. And you you, you never have the feeling that it, this somehow doesn't work, but I think it helps to establish them as this very as this very normal couple and that we are watching and we are simply observing what is happening to them. Yeah, it's it just really does a lot with those small moments and really considers these characters and how they're placed in shots and scenes with just so much thought. That's why I think it never really... Uh, becomes boring or something like that. Um, this film, I would say, has a trifecta of strong performances in its core. Um, you have um, Emmanuel Riva as Anne. Let's go with her first. What do you think of her performance? Um, well, obviously, um, I think it's it's a great performance. Um, I think she nails all the, the physical stuff. So um, there's not a single moment in the performance where you don't believe that she is wheelchair bound or later that she cannot talk anymore, that she had to stroke. So, so the physicality of the role is 100% there, and which of course is even more impressive considering the age of the actress. So I think that's uh, just something that's very impressive. But even more than that, um, she, I think she only... What's difficult for her is that she only has a few scenes at the beginning before the illness takes place where, where she can really establish the character. And I think that she does that really well. So you get the sense that she is a very intellectual woman, a very cultural woman, that she has experienced a lot in her life, that she has this very good relationship with her husband. I think this is all established very early and simply by 
her being a very natural presence on screen and having great chemistry with her co-star. Um, I think sometimes, what I sometimes think about these kinds of illness roles, just like, um, for example, Julie Christie in Away From Her, this is another performance I sometimes compare this in my mind to, it doesn't allow them to go too deep because at a certain point, the illness is all that they can play which of course is very impressive, but it's sometimes not real. It's not real. You're not really presenting a character here anymore. You're just displaying this illness, which is still very important and they are still doing very good, but it sometimes prevents me a little bit from really admiring it completely, but it's, it's still a fantastic performance. I, I don't know yet how I will grade it in the end at some point. Um, so again, making a little bit um, commercial for my blog, at some point I will include it in my best actress ranking. I don't know yet where it will be, but it, it is a great performance just from the physical level and how she presents this character and presents the um, relationship to George. How do you, how do you like her? I think I really appreciated this after rewatches because I think it's so easy to take for granted when, like you said, this is a very physical work, but not physical in the way that it demands a lot of work, a lot of movement or mobility, but a lot of restrictions. So she has, like you said, she has to build the foundations of a character before she slowly progresses. And I really admire the physical continuity. Like you really see the slow physical... Uh, decay or what's the right word and then yet um, even with a lot of physical mobility I mean in the end she even has half of her face immobile um, there's a lot of st- um, emotions bubbling <laughs> um, there, it's, there's a lot of emotional work done in the moment but at the same time like you said um, Riva, I think for me, um, has this character work done and set so that when she finally slowly hits that um, downward trajectory because of her illness, it still works because she has really presented a clear path for her character and how she relates and bounces off energy with um, George. I mean... Uh, we can go to uh, her performance in connection or in reference to her co-star Jean-Louis Trontignon's work. I mean, these two actors are just bouncing off so much um, <laughs> history and uh, skill and just chemistry. What do you think of Trontignon's performance? Um I think he was also um, amazing. I mean, I think the whole movie really depends on its actors since it's such a small character study and we spend all the time with these two. So the whole movie really depends on their performances and he is also um, amazing. This again reminds me a little bit of um, Away From Her with Julie Christie because I sometimes feel a little bit amazed that it happens so often that in these kinds of movies where one person has the illness and the other person has to deal with it, it's usually the person with the illness who sweeps all the awards when personally I always feel a little a little bit more drawn to the other person who has to deal with it because I think this is mostly a very a much deeper performance because we get all the 
frustration that comes with dealing with a sick person, um, the love, maybe even sometimes the hate, the impatience, desperation. And I think he plays this really well, always without overdoing it. So he has a very calm face, almost stoic in some parts, but you still always sense what he is feeling and what he um, what he thinks at these moments. And this is also why I, when I watched the movie, I thought a little bit of On Golden Point, because I think Henry Fonda and Catherine Hepburn does the same thing extremely well, making you believe that they spent their entire lives together. And I think um, um, Emmanuel Riva and Jean-Louis, uh, sorry, what's his name? <laughs> and Trint, uh, I will probably pronounce this horribly, Trintantino. Um, I also think they are doing just the same. Um, re-establishing this relationship and making you believe that they spent their entire lives together. And I think he also does this whole, his whole arc extremely well. So from loving, so loving her, being impatient at her, um, being frustrated and simply follow, accompanying her step by step in her process. and. Yeah, as I said, the whole movie depends on the performances of these two, and I think they make for an amazing couple on the screen. Yeah, I, I would, I really, um, I find it interesting what you mentioned about the, the award season uh, thing with couples, and one of them is experiencing like a disease. Um, that's the same thing here as well. I mean, Emmanuel Riva eventually got her Best Actress nomination at the Oscars, but. Jean-Louis Trintignant did not get the same amount of buzz. Um, and yeah, and I think I really admired his work more again in rewatches because I think it's so easy to sideline these characters that are like, well, they don't get to do as much as the one that has the disease. But with Trintignant's performance, there's a lot of internalized pain in seeing um, his loved one slowly go down the path and then just a lot of suffering and there's a lot of keeping it together you know as to someone like you know in relationships like you've got to keep yourself together for the one that's suffering so that she, she would not you know feel fault to feel fully down but yeah there's a lot of internalized work here and it just shows these characters have uh these actors have actors and characters have years of work together. I mean, as characters, they're both um, in, the, in the music world. And as actors, oh my gosh, their filmographies are astounding. Um, so it really comes together here in a very beautiful way. And it just shows where... Um, I think casting them both in this kind of film really helps because when your film is dwelling on small daily life moments you've got to have actors that would bring the life to those moments so that it would be believable that they're actually together for decades and they're living in this apartment and i think that helps in how organic this film ultimately feels like it is a genuine depiction of how couples handle this kind of situation yeah yeah, I totally agree. And what I also just love about them is we said at the beginning that it's not a sentimental movie. And this is also because of their performances. Those are not sentimental performances. So I like it, for example, that we never get some kind of long close up of her, maybe where she is 
pondering about her situation or feeling guilty or things like this. But even after she had a stroke and when we have scenes where he helps her, they are still very behaving very normal around each other. And he is also, he never becomes sentimental. He very openly shows when he is angry or when he is upset. I mean, we have to see where he slaps her when she refuses to drink. He also behaves kind of bitchy towards his daughter and you just sense how his whole situation is affecting him and taking its, its toll on him. And also with the, the caretaker who comes and brings the, and helps him to carry up the bags. I mean, he's also nice to them, but again, not overly friendly. And also when he fires the nurse, it's, it's all a very matter of fact. So these scenes are never meant to be some big statement, but they just show how he's dealing with everything. And I, I, I love it that ne neither of them ever tries to make it sentimental in any way, but they are very honest in showing the frustration and, and, and simply the, the anger also that comes with a process like this. So you, you're not only feeling guilty or feeling sad or feeling upset, but there comes a point when you take care of, of a sick person and essentially just wait for the person to die at some point where you, of course, it affects how you behave and it affects your whole character. And I think he shows this without overdoing it. And I think this, this is really a great part of this performance. And this is also why I really love these kind, love these performances that show how a person deals with the illness. Yeah, and I, I would agree that there, there are no quote-unquote Oscar clips. I think uh, as being fans of Oscar, um, Oscars and Best Actor specifically, we're, we're kind of, <laughs> we're kind of geared into looking for that scene, for that one scene to like, oh, yeah, that's the nomination. Okay, yeah, there you go. That's, yeah, she got that. There are no big scenes here, and yet they are afforded with so much character work in those quiet moments, like you said, those small moments. Um, yeah. Um, Emmanuel Rivas' Oscar clip was when uh, George slapped Ed, and that's not a that's not a common choice for an Oscar clip, I would say. <laughs> yeah, not at all. Um, there is another performance here that we haven't talked about yet. Uh, another acting legend, Isabelle Luper, as Eva, their daughter, who comes once in a while to check on. Um, Anne's situation and then when she realizes that things are not getting any better she really becomes concerned about the situation um, what do you think of this performance by Isabelle Huppert? Uh, I mean obviously it's, it's Isabelle Huppert so it has to be great <laughs> I, I love it that she can so completely disappear into a role I mean it's not uh, it's not a chameleon role where she becomes a different person but um, she's just this just that she leaves this whole movie star quality that she has she can so easily leave this behind and portray this very ordinary person so it I think it, there's always the danger when you cast somebody very well known in a movie like this in a smaller role that this person maybe is throws off the balance of the thing because as the viewer you think oh that's Isabelle Huppert but uh, I don't think this ever happens in the movie because she's just so completely authentic as this as the daughter of the two of them again also very frustrated very angry about the whole thing again in no way a sentimental performance you never I don't think that she ever I mean she has moments where she's sad um, but you never 
you never really have the feeling that this is a very loving family because the movie never presents them as very close. But again, I think it helps to make them a very real family. And when they talk, when she and, and George talk about her mother and the situation, they are, again, they are very, not cold, but very matter of fact. And I think this, again, works very well when she constantly says, oh, we have to do something. And he just says, well, there's the nurse coming. She doesn't want to go to the hospital, to a hospital. Tell me what can we do? And of course, she doesn't have an answer. It just feels very authentic. And uh, I think her whole performance works better again works very well and she plays off um her male co-star very well yeah i think this performance is to be credited to uh, isabel and Mikael's like um collaboration because like you said when you have a big big name and a legend a legend <laughs> coming in um there can be like an interruption like uh, but the film never really places her you know, like as as the big star coming in, it never really feels that way. Um, her entrance to the film, to the story, feels organic, and she also has this wonderful energy bouncing off with Trentino, especially because she and Trentino are the ones that are really having the conversation. When she is with Riva in a scene, it's mo- mostly just um, her talking, and then Riva in bed quietly. Um, I think she is, I'm not saying with only, but she is the one that is probably most emotionally uh, open or like um, she's the closest to an emotional outburst we ever get. (laughs) And it's still not a full-blown outburst because, um, yeah, she comes in and there's a lot of feelings as well because... Uh, it's unlike George because George handles handles the situation like as a matter of fact because she uh, he saw everything from the beginning and he's been with Anne from the beginning. I think with Ava, her character, it just feels natural that she is probably more emotional because this is new to her. This is cha- gonna change things. She doesn't really know how to handle it because she's coming in when this is already in motion. Um, do you think? Um, do you think who uh, Oper's um, does it feel like she's interrupting the narrative or not at all? Mm. First of all, I quickly want to say, of course, I'm not saying that John Louis and Emmanuel Riva are not acting legends in their own right. Before we, before anybody <laughs> misunderstands, <Okay. laughs> understand this. Um, when I uh, when I said um, you have this movie star, I just think to more to the general movie going public. She's probably a better known face and person than Emmanuel Riva and John Louis Trintignant. Um, I think I don't think she interrupts the movie. I mean, in a way, you could say that her character is not necessary for the story, which I'm actually just thinking now. Uh, so this was, so I didn't think about this when I saw the movie, but in a way you could say the movie could also only be about the couple and they could also be childless because it wouldn't really change the story. But I think her presence, I think serves the, the story in a way that we get a little bit more glimpse into George's character because um, without having these kind of conversations with um, people to talk about the situation, I think it might be a little bit difficult to understand him all the time or to 
to to to to keep the story flowing. I think if we would only focus on the couple, it might sometimes be a little bit hard to follow or not really understand where they are at the moment in their in in the illness process of her. I think the the conversations he is having with Eva they help the audience to move the story along and to know oh she had a second stroke and oh this is now happening oh and she's feeling this and i also imagine it gives um, us another angle for this whole topic so we see the daughter who talks a lot about oh we have to do something or oh this is so horrible but when you're honest she also doesn't do anything so she doesn't she i don't think that she really comes by I don't think that we know where she lives. I think she has this husband who is um, who is also a musician, and I think he's touring. So maybe she's accompanying him. I'm not sure, but it's not like that she's moving close to them or helping him in any way, dealing with him. So it's I think this again helps to make the movie more realistic, so that we do not see a lot of friends and family coming in and supporting him. But I think this is what happens in real life. People come, they say, oh, this is so horrible. What is happening to you and mom? But I don't think that people, in most cases, I don't think that people would really change everything about their life to help somebody else. It might be, a, I think this might be a frustrating thought, but I think it's just, um, again, how it most likely happens in real life. And there's also like a distance between, you know, it's 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 different with um, a couple and then uh, with her as a daughter to these two. I think there's a specific, there is a specific distance to them as well. That yeah, that's no, she's I, barging in. Yeah. 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 I never have the feeling that they are very close. So, yeah. What I what I also think is very interesting. I think it's her first scene when when she comes for to visit them. You have this you already mentioned this this scene where we only see her all the time and they are only talking about her life and about her marriage and then at some point they change talking about her mother so you would think that the mother would be the main topic of conversation they are having all the time and her illness but they are talking about completely different stuff before they finally talk about her so like it's like they are avoiding it or maybe even like he doesn't want to talk about it because he doesn't want any intruders so maybe he feels like this is their thing that they have to go through as a couple and that he just understands that nobody can really help them and he probably already knows that their daughter won't also won't help them that she cannot really provide any any support or any insight into what he should be doing different yeah one very interesting thing that i remember in that scene is that um she mentioned something about when she was younger she's actually listening when Anne and George are making love because it comforts her and makes her feel like they're going to stay together. Um, and then <laughs> I am, um, am I right? that I remember that uh, her character actually has some relationship problems with uh, yeah, her husband. Having an affair, yeah. Yeah. So maybe that's also a motivation. That's why she suddenly like barges in with so much like quote unquote urgency is because she doesn't want this thing that she has believed and has comforted her in her life, this presence of a couple together. And now she's going through uh, falling apart. Maybe she doesn't want that. I don't know. This is just an observation I had right now. Yeah. I mean, I think later she's, later she's coming with her husband. 
think they are visiting them together at some point later. When they are, I think he's, I think from England or from America because he's speaking English at some point. But uh, yeah, you don't, I don't have the feeling that um, Eva is a very loving person in general. So Isabelle Huppert gives a, I think she probably gives the cold, maybe even gives the coldest performance, I think, of all the people, even though she has this little outbreak and some tears about her mother, but I never really have the feeling that she is really totally involved in what in what's happening. Even when she has this one scene with Emmanuel Riva, where they are talking to each other, she feel, she seems very distant, so she doesn't understand her mother, and at some point then she just leaves. And so, not entire. Yeah, I think it's interesting to to speculate about how much the daughter, how much her character is really part of the family, or if they had maybe some fall some fallen out at some point or how the relationship between the parents and the daughter was over the years. I think probably because um, I think, as I said, they are presented as a very intellectual couple, um, George and Anne. So I'm not sure how loving they are as they were as parents. I could imagine that they were very demanding parents, just speculating about them. So yeah, I think that's probably there's probably a lot of backstory that could be um, could be could be speculated about with the, with the three of them again, which I think makes the movie so great. There's just so much that uh, that's also left unsaid and that you can just uh, speculate and think about. Yes, definitely. Um, and just what did you think about the, the scene when at the beginning when they came back to their apartment and they noticed that somebody wanted to break in? Um, it's never mentioned again um, later. So do you do you think again that's just one of this is just another scene that's just supposed to show how life how life is or do you think this is this had some meaning i think it's a suggestion that something wrong is gonna come mm -hmm. <laughs> that's yeah, the only yeah. thing i got in my mind okay right no, 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 that's, no that's, i just i was just thinking about it. yeah no that's that's an interesting thought yeah because i was always thinking about if this had if you want if they wanted to tell us something with that but yeah that, that might be might be an interesting idea that the reason why I didn't didn't think much about it because I think when when I was thinking about this film, I, I'm using the word think a lot in this sentence. Um, I'll, unlike any of the other films that I have discussed so far in this podcast, this feels like quote unquote the smallest. The story being the very most personal and intimate at the same time. So I was probably in my mind as others these are mundane moments but at the same time yeah um, with a very well thought out screenplay there are no coincidences in this film and i think that is a suggestion that something wrong is gonna come in and it might probably have already come in their lives i mean it's metaphorical but also physically there might be an intrusion that happened there somewhere mm -hmm. oh, yeah yeah the intrusion idea yeah that, yeah that, that's that's a good idea yeah because they are so very intimate with each other and spend all their life with each other that maybe that somebody something somebody or something from outside is coming and trying to destroy this and the one that handles that lock situation is george so yeah we kind of see like <laughs> where it's the nature of their relationship is going mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> that's that's it's a great idea what um what i what, another thing I, um, the funny thing is I came back to two Catherine Hepper movies while I watched this, so <laughs> on Golden Pond. The other one is uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, because what I um, thought when watching the movie was that it's interesting that they are obviously a very rich couple, or maybe not, not rich, but maybe but obviously very well, 
position so that it's no problem for him to take care of her and that he can pay nurses and things like this. Um, this reminded me a little bit of uh, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, just in the way that people often criticize that um, Sidney Poitier's character was so perfect that you could not object to him marrying your daughter. But I think in both cases, it helped to really focus the story. So in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, basically the only thing they could object to is that she is black. And in Amour, I think the fact that they are so well off financially, it helps to focus the story really just on how he takes care of her and what is happening between these two. So you cannot say, I think if, it, if this movie was made in another um, social group, um, by, then maybe you could just say, oh, if they only had more money, then everything would be different. So I think this, it, 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 I think it helped to make the movie, to give this movie this very specific angle that it really just focuses on the relationship between these two and prevents everything, every, every kind of outside trouble and keeps it, keeps this outside and keeps everything in the apartment, everything between these two. Just a thought yeah. I had while watching this movie. The apartment was so big. <laughs> so <Yes. laughs> they're obviously like doing so well, like in Paris to get that kind of apartment. Like, sure, that's yeah, so yes, big. And, and I mean, with, as he always said, he's pay. I mean, when he pays the nurse, I think it's like 800 euros for the work that she's done. And he's not even happy about the work. She, I mean, she's, um, um, she has hurt um and in some ways, so um, he obviously has no trouble financially. But um, yeah, I mean, it gives it limited the movie in a way. But again, it helps to focus the story really just on what it wants to tell and really just on her stroke, the illness, and how it affects these two characters. So I think, like as we said, it, everything is happening in the apartment, and every kind of outside trouble is kept outside. This just helps to, to make to gives this movie this kind of uh, this kind of angle and construction. Um, I haven't seen Guess Who's Coming to Dinner yet. I, oh, okay, I was sorry. so excited <laughs> to watch it. No, no, no. It's, it's, you know, I was trying to have my own personal journey to watching all of the best actress winners as well. <laughs> I mean, no, I know is, you already did, right? Yeah, I saw it. And this, this is usually the big criticism for the movie that uh, Sidney Poitier's character, he's, he's a, what is he? He's a doctor. He's an expert. He's traveling the world, helping children in Africa. He's, uh, I think he is at some sort of United Nations missions. So he's absolutely perfect in every way and this is usually the big criticism for the movie that you say how could anyone object to the marriage if you have if, if it, i mean he looks like Sidney portier he's he's an angel but i think it helps but i think it it's actually a, a good idea because it helps to keep really keep the movie on the only thing that they could object to is the color of his skin so it keeps the movie focused on this discussion i think yeah you have to make those choices as a as a storyteller to to isolate uh, what you really want to talk about so that you can have maximum impact. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I think that Amur also did this very well with um, simply the way it presented those two as a couple. Definitely. Uh, have you seen any other Hanukkah films? Um, yeah, I think um, uh, Kashi is a Hanukkah film, right? Um, just... Yes. Yeah, but again, <laughs> so sorry, it's been so long since I've seen it. Yeah, I think I've watched it. Uh, way back in 2015 those are my only Hanukkah exposures <laughs> so far in my life yeah. um, um, I have to that's, this is also why I'm so happy about your podcast um, so listening to your podcast but also being part of your podcast it really widens my horizon because I have to be very honest my knowledge about foreign language movies is extremely limited I mean obviously for me English movies are foreign language movies but um, 
basically English movies and old Hollywood movies and stuff like this. This is my go-to and this is um, where I spend all my time. So my knowledge about non-English movies, even about German movies, is extremely limited. I know this is probably not a very good idea since so many great movies are coming from all over the world. But time is limited and you just have to make some decisions. But this is why I love um, love your podcast and love to be here on it because it really, um, it really made me watch... Um, other movies outside of this very small, very small era, and it's really, really is a great experience. Yay! <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's the same thing as me. I mean, I, being the host, I am also like on a journey because I think you and I, I mean, we're both in the same situation. Our native language is not English, but yet, since we are big fans of um, the Oscars, maybe and movies in general our go-to are definitely the English ones. And yeah. I personally also have some blind spots with Filipino cinema. <laughs> so that's not, not something I'm proud of. But yeah, this is also like a work in progress. And I think hopefully, um, yeah, this is a journey that hopefully would be rewarding. And I think it would be because, like you said, there's so many great, so much great cinema outside of English. And I yeah. think now we have the time. Yeah, <laughs> no, there's so many, so, yeah, so many great movies. I mean, yeah, and it would be great to have the time to watch all of them, but <laughs> unfortunately, we don't. Yeah, I mean, you it will it would even be tough. Like for example, this like for example, when you do um, one year in foreign language, you're gonna watch all the submissions. Like how? Oh my gosh, to watch those submissions. I mean, where? Um, yeah, but it's a tough ordeal and. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah and of course i mean it's just um yeah also just to find them because it's also much easier to find movies in hollywood movies or english language movies than movies from other countries and then you have to find them also with the subtitles and it's just um also not the, not the easiest job <laughs> yeah it's an issue of access as well and that's yeah. that's not just for the podcast but for in general like how us as an international movie going audience why are we now in this position like our go-to our English movies where we can celebrate um, films from all over the world and right now so far at the Oscars I mean we just broke through the glass ceiling of language this year but we've always had this one category for the whole world to, to fit in meanwhile yes. the rest of the categories at the Oscars it's mostly dominated by English language films so yeah um, I asked that question about Hanukkah because when I was thinking about themes for this film, I thought, okay, old age, okay, deaf. But then I saw his statement. He said that the main theme of his script is not old age and death. So like, I'm sorry, but quote unquote, the question of how to deal with the suffering of a loved one. Um... I think after of after everything we've talked about, it's clear that the film paints a really clear picture of how this couple deals with the pain. I mean, for for George, the pain of seeing Anne deteriorate, and for Anne, the pain of seeing George suffer because of her own uh, ailments. So, um. Yeah, I mean, I've never, 
had a relationship yet, a romantic relationship. But I think seeing these two, it just makes me feel. Uh, it it this is just a a, a beautiful way into this specific kind of relationship that's not really dealt with in cinema with this much authenticity. Like what happens to couples after a happily ever after? What happens after 50 years? <laughs> what happens when one becomes sick? So yeah, there's a lot of rawness and realism to the story, I would say. Yeah, definitely. And you probably can only find a story like this in a non-English or non-US movie. I mean, if, if this movie was made in the US, um, the end would probably be played by Jennifer Lawrence or something like this. <laughs> so, um, so it, it, uh, we're going to talk about Jennifer Lawrence later. <laughs> yes. No, I just thought about her at the first moment because I, I mean, I just think we don't get a lot of movies about um, old couples and um, their life. And that's probably why I was also immediately thought of on Golden Pond because that's the first, that's the other movie I can think about right now that deals with an old couple and age and the question of death and mental decline and things like this but we don't get these kind of movies too often and so I think it's really I, I think that's again why I appreciate Amur so much because it's it's it might be a very small story but not one that is told very often and not one that you would even want to think about, but this is um, what what is happening to Anne is a part of life that could happen to anyone, um, and that might be that each one of us has to deal with it, this also at some point uh, in our life. But of course, nobody would want to think about this. Yeah, I think it is. It is just sad that you know that first of all, we rarely see films about um, people of a certain age of an older age be in films and the second one we have to go to a film from Austria, Germany, France to see this kind of story being told. I mean, I think I mean right now everything's on halt unfortunately, but when we go to statistics, I mean in Hollywood, the most consistent um age group of film goers that actually buy tickets to cinemas when we still had cinemas <laughs> is 51 years old above so you know they're they are really paying to watch movies and i think we're we're just this past three to five years we've been seeing like a change like a shift like we're now seeing more stories not just in film but also in television about um older people older women which is like a nobody in hollywood for most of its history like right now we're seeing these stories and yeah it is really important to tell stories like this. Um, I do want to ask one question. Um, no, not just one, actually. <laughs> uh, first of all, what do you think of the lack of music except for the music within the film? Um, to be honest, I actually didn't even notice it. So um, I know I know there's this classic music. Yeah, I know that there's classic music and apart from this, there's nothing but I don't think the movie needs music. Um, I think it really helps to give this realistic feeling. It helps to focus on the conversations that they are having. Um, I, I, I really don't... I, the funny thing is later we're going to talk about another movie in this category where the movie, where I think the music was very noticeable and it, I think it played a great part in it. But I think for Amu, I don't think it needs music. It needs music. 
and I really didn't miss it. I was just trying to think, oh, what's that movie <laughs> that has a lot of music? Yeah. So yeah, I think it just it is again like an organic choice for this film. It just um, you know when we usually talk about Oscars, when we go to categories, um, we usually notice um, directing, good directing, when it's so technically heavy. Like, of course, that's gonna get best director because it got us craft categories but at the same time you can also see how this directing nomination for Mikel Haneke is so well deserved because of how every single choice just comes together lack of music wide shots um, production design having long unbroken takes it just comes together beautifully so yeah, yeah. Uh, and no, sorry um, I just want to say actually I know totally different movie makers and totally different style, but I thought about Hitchcock in a way when watching this movie, because I think Hitchcock was also a director who really had the whole movie in his head when he began to shoot it. And he knew every single detail of the story beforehand and what shot he wanted to make and where to shoot. And, and I had the same feeling when watching Amour that Haneke really thought out everything about the movie, where the camera goes, where the, the, the actors go. And again, it feels like a noticeable style of directing but never overwhelming that you said that you have the feeling that the director wants to show off or something like this just very thought through and beautifully realized i'm i think you you know we you you know that the film's great when you see it because it just it just it feels complete and hanukkah is definitely one of those filmmakers where just he's just so in command of the filmmaking technique um going to that observation when you mentioned hitchcock since we're in 2012 i thought you were mentioning like the 2012 film hitchcock starring anthony hopkins and helen Mirren. like okay and that's not it so okay um, no not... <laughs> no i didn't really uh, uh, i saw it i saw the movie i didn't care too much for it i was also not i was also not sad that helen Mirren was not nominated oh <laughs> Yeah, we're gonna talk more best actress later. Um, I do have one question. This is this is the one question that I was talking about, and then I forgot I have another question. Um, what do you think of George's choice of euthanizing Anne? Oh, that's difficult. <laughs> I know um, we're just talking about yeah. films, and now we go to the big questions of yeah, euthanasia. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, everybody obviously has a different opinion on how to deal with situation like this, or how to help people in situation like this ease their suffering. I mean, I think there's an earlier scene where Anne, when she's still in a wheelchair, already says that she doesn't want to go on like this, where she kind of already hints um, that this is not a life for her worth living. Um, again, not very, not in very big words, but um, he says um, it's not an obligation for him to take care of him and stuff like this. But um, yeah, you, you just kind of sense that um, for Anne, this is lying there and not being able to move and talk is not the kind of life she wants. So, so personally, I think if a person doesn't want to live like this anymore, it should be perfectly fine to, to end it for this person. Um, but again, it's a very <laughs> tough and difficult subject with a lot of moral and ethical questions around it that... Um, be very <laughs> very difficult to discuss i mean it doesn't surprise me as an as as this as an ending for this specific movie 
because it is after all a movie and it needs some kind of ending and person i think this kind of helping um uh, helping and to, uh, to leave her pain and just end it all that i think is a this might be the most conventional thing about the movie so that you have this at the ending so um i think that's not really a surprising um so when i watched it the first time i didn't know that he would do this but it, it didn't surprise me um i thought this was the kind of ending for, for this kind of movie um how um how every <laughs> it's such a difficult difficult question so maybe a little bit like million dollar baby where you, uh, again i spoiled the movie but um again i think it's totally up to the characters decide right for them and if this is what they want so i i wouldn't judge um george for what he does again i think what he does he does out of love because of obviously killing the person you've spent your whole life with is most definitely the hardest thing you could do and but he knows that it it's what has to be done for her and obviously we don't know what happens to him um so we, he i think at the, at the at the end he just i think he just leaves the apartment and doesn't come back so we don't know what what will happen to him um so it, it's it's tough um but i think it's what's best for for this, the couple in this situation even if it's of course totally devastating for him sorry that i stutter so much it's just um, <laughs> sorry that i stutter so much here it's just really very very tough to exp- it's, it's, it's a very difficult subject to to um, talk about in english so um i try to, to make yeah. sense of what i'm thinking yeah. but um yeah i think it makes sense for the movie to end like this and again if this is what the characters wanted if it, this is what they decide for for themselves then i think it's perfectly fine to happen yeah and i'm so sorry for putting you on the spot i mean that's just a weird no, no, I, turn I, that i did no no obviously my... we need to obviously we need to talk about the ending it's just uh, i also thought about this already it's just very it's just difficult to express yeah i mean we were just talking about jennifer lawrence and helen mirren and then we went to like what do you think <laughs> about his decision um i think it is a very tough decision that's why there's a lot of discussions about that uh the concept of euthanasia um i would personally i don't think i would have like the courage to do what he did but i think either you don't do it or you do it i think this is a kind of situation where both of the driving factors is love like um yeah it's just it's a tricky situation because it's different every time and i also think it's different when you wanted to do it to the patient versus the patient asking you to do it so i think there's a lot of moral ambiguity that i think the film is not really interested in or not interested the film doesn't really delve into the moral intricacies but really just presents like yeah. well this is what a person does out of love yes and yeah the final moments of the film are quite ambiguous like you said after he struck um smart what's the term smothered her with pillow oh, yeah. uh he then proceeded to make like a makeshift funeral for her that that we saw at the beginning was like after a few days maybe she was already starting to deteriorate uh it was also mentioned that they hate going to funerals i think he hates going to funerals um but in the end he is the one making like a makeshift funeral for her 
And then the very final scene is after everything has happened, Ava just comes in. Um, what do you think of this uh, ending, which I think is the most ambiguous part of the film? Um, yeah, yeah, as you said, it's very ambiguous because we don't really know what happens to him. He had, at, at the end, there's the scene where the, the bird is in the apartment and he he catches it with the, the, the blanket and then kind of cuddles it. And I think, if I'm not 100% wrong, I think that's the last scene we have with him, where we see him. And then, obviously, a couple of days later, um, I think it's probably because her body is already starting to... Um, I don't understand the word for this to decompose. Uh, yeah, yeah, to smell, if you want to say it like this, because when they go inside, they all have the, the tissues in front of their face and open windows. So that's probably why why the police was called in the first place. And then, yeah, Eva is alone in the apartment. It's probably after they took out the body of the mother. And so, yeah, we don't know what happens to the father. And yeah, it's, it's a very ambiguous ending. And but again, I think it serves the movie very well. I think it's the kind of ending that a movie like this should have. So that leaves some things to the imagination. So personally, I have no idea um, what George would do at the end. I don't think that, don't suppose that he would kill himself. I don't think that he would do that. But I'm also not sure what he would do at the end. So where he would go. I don't know, do you have any ideas of what, what um, he might I do? Think, well... Well, I think this is Hanukkah being Hanukkah, first of all, but then, I don't know, because I don't think there was any discussion, because our, I think our only way into the present time was the first scene. I don't think there was any mentions of him disappearing, so I don't know if he left, or he maybe he also died there, but we only get to see the wife. Um, yeah, even that yeah. is ambiguous. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, what are your favorite scenes? Or maybe favorite is a tough word, but what are our <laughs> most memorable scenes for this film? Well, well of course the most memorable is <laughs> obviously when he when he kills her. Um, but I think um the scene that leaves the most lasting impression is of, with me is when she's having her first stroke. Actually, when I saw this scene the first time. I actually thought it was a little bit weird because you don't immediately sense that she is having the strokes and she is just sitting there, not talking, just staring and not, not suddenly not doing anything anymore. And then he goes out and he um, wants to get some help and then he comes back and she's totally normal again. So I think when you watch the, the movie the first time and you don't know what's happening, it might be a little bit strange. But when I watched it, the movie again later, and then I knew that she was having the stroke at this moment, I thought it was completely terrifying. Yeah, I think it was a really horrifying scene because, you know, it just, it happened out of the blue. And yet it's, it's just a horrifying sight to see suddenly, to suddenly see someone so full of life. Suddenly, like, it feels like she just, you know, she she's she's zoned out in an in a very terrifying way. Um, yeah, I just think it just emphasizes this whole how your whole life can change from one second to the other. In yeah, how how, how this can yeah. just happen out of the blue. Definitely, um, I think also one of the scenes that I really find remarkable is when she was visited by the former student. Um, that scene 
I think there's a lot of <laughs> this film has a lot of pain. But that scene, I think there's a lot of pain contained because I think that's a reminder of her when she was still more capable. I mean, she's there as a teacher to this pianist and yet she's already paralyzed on her right side and she cannot play the piano. So, And then she wanted to avoid a conversation about that there's just a lot of um, re um, painful reminders of how this sickness has debilitated her in a sense that she cannot play the piano anymore. She, uh, People are now feeling sorry for her. Um, I think she has her guards up in that scene, and that's why, you know, it's a it's painful to see her in pain, but she's still trying to keep it together. Yeah, I also like this this scene because again, neither of them is trying to sweeten up their characters at this moment. So I think for for the guest of them, it sometimes you just know, see it's very uncomfortable for him because he doesn't really know what to say or what to do, and I think neither George nor Anne are really trying to make it too easy for him. So they are really very matter of fact about what's happening. I mean, they don't want to talk about it, but they also don't want to act as if nothing happened. And this I makes it rather difficult for, for him. And you see how uncomfortable he is all the time. And I think this just, again, underlines how these two are very used to each other and in how they interact. But when somebody from outside comes, they kind of have their guards up and really they, they don't make it too easy for other people just like the guest you'd see it when they how he interacts with their daughter and their son-in-law um they have a very specific relationship and they are very private and we have their own way of communicating outside and inside yeah it is a very tricky thing i mean i think i also remember on a, on a personal note um when someone loses a loved one and maybe you maybe I wasn't I wasn't I wasn't there when the whole death funeral happened and then when you see that person for the first time like uh, do I acknowledge the fact that you lost someone or do yeah. I ignore it or are you insensitive or is it bringing back the pain so yeah there's a lot of tricky dynamics in that scene yes um yeah Again, we talked about this already, the slap scene. That was just, <laughs> I don't want to, like, <laughs> but it's just a big, loud moment. <laughs> like, the slap was kind of loud in itself, but it was just a very, um, again, a painful reminder of how this kind of situation really tests the patience of both parties, Anne and George. Um, the one when he's forcing her to drink I mean he is definitely doing this out of love but at the same time he is getting tired already so yeah that's a really remarkable scene for me and um, yes yeah, can see why they chose this as an Oscar clip for her yes and also <clears throat> I think it's very relatable I mean we all have people that we love very much but we very often run out of patience for some reason or another and I think this slap comes very late in the movie. So when he has already dealt with a lot of things and I think it just, just shows how his, how um, his, not that his patience is running out, but how all of this affects him and, and takes his strength and how makes him do things that maybe he wouldn't have done a couple of weeks ago. But obviously it's not 
obviously this whole stroke is it's uh, it simply shows how this affects everyone so not just her but of course also him and their whole relationship and for me i think if on a personal note if i'm gonna go choose one scene it would be emmanuel riva's oscar scene it would be when she wets her bed and then when george assists her she uh, he puts her on the um, on the wheelchair that is mechanical and then she rushes to the comfort room to the bathroom and that you see so much like embarrassment and um embarrassment and uh, you know, shame and just you know she already knows that she's not in control of the situation and it's just like when it feels like when she's about to have a an outburst moment the film cuts so yeah that was a really remarkable scene and i think that's probably my favorite scene of hers mm-hmm. well i don't think i really have a specific favorite scene for either of them because as we already said they don't really have these big scenes but they are both very organic performances that just flow along without these big moments or monologues that you usually expect from oscar performances um but this is what for me makes them so great this is why i also understand why it probably was very difficult to choose them an oscar clip for her because it's not just not a very grand emotional performance so she she doesn't have these outbursts so yeah i really couldn't even pick If I now think about it, I think it would be very difficult for me to pick an Oscar clip for her. Maybe it would be the scene when she when she is visited by the by the pianist and she says to him that she would like to talk about something else, where you sense all these different feelings inside of her: the happiness that she is there, the pride in her pupil becoming this acclaimed pianist, but at the same time the shame of sitting there in this wheelchair, not being able to maybe even perform with him or that she sees her like this, all these different conflicting emotions. Maybe this would be the Oscar clip I would pick for her. Yeah, I think she also has the same quote-unquote problem maybe with Jalitza Parizio in Roma is that those performances don't really have the Oscar scene, but they are so well incorporated in the vision of the director yeah. in the story. Yeah, so, that's yeah. probably why she had the weirdest, one of the weirdest Oscar clips ever. <laughs> yes. I mean, she has the hospital scene and the beach scene. Why that? Um, yeah. So do you have any other final thoughts or for... Do you have any other final thoughts about Amour? I think we... we let me just check my notes. I think we talked about it very extensively. Maybe um, just maybe what do you think about the bird? I was going to write that down, but since I had no thought about it, I can't <laughs> Okay, <laughs> Yeah, it's also yeah. I have to say it's also kind of difficult for me because we already talked about it. The movie is so very matter of fact and very often so realistic without trying to present a deeper meaning. This is why I think the the whole movie, the whole bird sequence, makes it a little bit difficult to understand because there you have the feeling that suddenly you are supposed to to feel something more or to to have a deeper insight into something else. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, there's first the scene where he chases the movie out and then later we have the scene where he ca- catches, and uh, not the movie, sorry, where he chases the bird out. And then later he, he catches the bird and cuddles it. So, I mean, the 
most obvious thing obvious thing would be that he holds on to it after he lost um he lost his wife but i'm not entirely sure if that's really what Hennick is really trying to say at this moment or why he would then say it like this so yeah i'm also a little bit lost here <laughs> yeah um, i don't know how uh, pigeons uh, what pigeons mean in terms of european culture or like french culture i i'm not specific i'm not sure about that but i think just on my perspective i think it's about um george letting something go maybe um, because the the bird is uh, definitely has been trapped in the apartment for a few times, and then he catches it and holds on to it. But then, yeah, I don't I don't know if they have some me- meaning in Fra- uh, deeper meaning in French. So I know that I, I think a pigeon in Germany you, you mostly refer to pigeons as the rats of the air because they have so many diseases. <laughs> no. Oh. So I'm not really sure. Uh, so I, I really cannot come up with a deeper meaning. Yeah, I mean, it is a pigeon, right? It's not um, another bird. Yeah. Oh. I think I think it's a pigeon. Yeah. I'm a little bit lost here, to uh, be honest. <laughs> yeah, we tried. Yeah. <laughs> we tried thinking about why. Uh, yeah, let's see. Is, is it a... Is it a... I think it's a... It's, it, it, is a it is a pigeon, so yeah. So yeah, maybe it's yeah, really I... just the, the the letting go, or holding on to something, and maybe this just shows that this is all that he has left. Um, let's just leave it there. <laughs> yeah. So I think we can now talk about Amour's journey to Oscar gold. This premiered at Cannes, One Palm Door. And actually the jury said that they actually wanted it to award Palm Door director, actor, actress. But that uh, there's an, a Cannes rule against that. So it won Palm Door. It was released in September 21 in Austria and December 19 in the United States, perfect Christmas film. This was Austria's second win and fourth nomination. It won Globe, BAFTA, and Critics' Choice for foreign language film. It also won New York Film Critics and National Board of Review for foreign language film. It won Los Angeles and National Society of Film Critics for Best Picture. Its domestic gross in the United States is 6.7 million. International 22.9. Worldwide is 29.7 million dollars. I think that's good for a film like this. Yes, I would agree. Yeah, 29 million dollars. Yes. Um, so I think it is hard to talk about a more foreign language film run with its best picture run. But first questions first, because this this film was not just, um, Amour was not just nominated for foreign language film, it's also nominated for picture. Um, maybe not surprising since it was an expanded ballot, but it also got in directing, which was major. Yes. Got in, uh, got in screenplay. Also, that's huge. 
Um, we've seen how in the preferential ballot, the preferential ballot really favored more openly emotional films compared to cold films. That's why you can see Foxcatcher getting in directing but not picture. Um, and you can see also why the gold, the, the gold, the girl with the dragon tattoo got five nominations but not picture. So I think this film, the expanded ballot really benefited, um, really benefits films with so much passion. Why do you think Amour was able to break in best picture? Oh, that's always um, difficult to speculate. I think um, probably was helped by Emmanuel Weaver's award buzz, so that she um, won awards and was considered an acting contender. So more people like in the Academy likely saw the movie for that reason. Um, it then you have it breaking into best directing. Um, which of course is decided by the director's branch. Um, so the nominations, my, I think picture are nominated, everybody nominates for best picture. Um, probably the pre-Oscars pre bus. So if it managed, the fact that it managed to win best picture at um, awards, critics awards groups, most likely made people check it out and the preferential ballot then helped it when you put the movie, uh, I think when you put the movie, probably had some very passionate fans who put it at number one which um, helped it to break through here. So this would be my my speculation that from time to time, a foreign language film manages to break into foreign language. And I think this movie had enough buzz and um, enough prestige to, to get there. Yeah, I think it, it's also helped the fact that um, it pre-rated Cannes on Palm d'Or and it, was, it wasn't a contested win. It, it wasn't a controversial win. So it was one of the earliest films out. And then because it premiered at Canada around May, but it was released in December, I think there was just a steady conversation of people talking about it. Um, so leading up to its eventual release. And then I think it benefited from those, um, from a small group that voted number one. Because I can also imagine other people finding this cold and maybe not voting for it, but at the same time, like this this ballot really benefits passion, and I think Amour has that passion for it. And it was a weird year at the Oscars because they moved the deadline earlier, so you have front runners like Argo, Zero Dark Thirty, Les Misérables, missing directing. So, and then you have uh, Mikael Haneke. I did not predict Mikael Haneke at the time. And I also did not predict Ben Zeitlin for yeah. directing. So those were huge surprises at the time. Um, it was a nutty Oscar year. Yeah, I still remember when they made the announcement. Uh, just, uh, at the, the Oscar announcement that year, they didn't present the nominees in alphabetical order, but just in some random order and when they did best director they kept Ben Zeitlin for last I mean the academy they knew exactly what they were doing there with, with the band at the end but there was no Ben Affleck um, I know there was a lot of talk <laughs> about this huge... it was a different Ben yeah I know there was a lot of talk about this huge snap of Ben Affleck arc. oh my god but I think this year was really some this was really some of the best things the director's branch ever did that year that lineup that they produced in the end I think they they really did a great job there to to expand this with um, 
like Michael Haneker and, and Ben Zeitlin. I think those were two totally left out of left field um, contenders that were included here. I think they did a really great job. I was so happy that they didn't that they didn't nominate Tom Hooper. Um, Les Miserables is my favorite musical, but the movie is so horrible. And so, so that, that really, um, for me at least, also I think it, the movie is awful. I think Anne Hathaway is great, um, don't get me wrong, but I think the, the movie itself is, is awful. And yeah, so it's, yeah, yeah, director's branch did a great job here. Um, I remember, so as I said, I, since I'm not really so much into foreign language films per se, I didn't also really follow the this category so but I, I remember that back then I was aware of Amour and was aware that it was winning all of these awards and I also remember when the talk began of Emmanuel Weaver so I don't think that she was really considered some kind of lock for the nomination from the beginning I think she really had to fight for this nomination um, and I think that people began to gradually uh, gradually talk about her and um, hyping her up so I wasn't surprised that she was included in the end, but I don't think it was a sure thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, first of all, <laughs> Les Miserables is my number one of 2012. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's okay. I, I, I understand the other side of the aisle so well. Um, and the second one, I think this was a this was a year very much, very inspired choices in directing. I mean, in as much as it pains me to see Catherine Bigelow missed that nomination. I think it would have been a historic nomination for her number two because yeah, it would have been deserved as well. No, yeah, no female director has been nominated twice, and then um, yeah, Emmanuel Rivas' um, Oscar journey was also not the safest. I think that year was also nutty in actress because she did not get nominated for Globe and SAG. But she won a BAFTA. I think at the time only and, and thanks Jennifer BAFTA Lawrence. For, thanks and, BAFTA for yeah. this because it gave us this great um, David O. Russell reaction gif. <laughs> yeah, I'm still looking for that. I mean, I, I I saw it still, but I'm still looking for that reaction in his face. Uh, it was really, um, it was really just like. Uh, of course, you cannot see it on the podcast, but <laughs> this was so great. Yeah, but and and I mean, Emmanuel Riva got back so well at the Oscars. I mean, when David Russell was announced as best director, it the camera was on Emmanuel Riva. So like, yeah, you know, you don't mess with Emmanuel Riva. No, um, no. That was also a weird year because I think only Jennifer Lawrence and Jessica Chastain were safe bets. Yes. Um, Naomi Watts had some uh, really passion from Reese Witherspoon yeah. and I forgot someone else. Um, yeah. And then... You also have um, Helen Mirren waiting for her um, Oscar nomination. This was the decade when she's always been close to a nomination but never got it. That's a weird run after she won the Queen and was nominated for the last station. Um, she got in for everywhere, I think, but she missed uh, at the Oscars. And then you also have Coven Jenny Wallace being the youngest Best Actress nominee, while Emmanuel Riva is the oldest Best Actress nominee, both happening together um, at the same lineup. And then there's also the case for Marion Cotillard for Rust and Bone. Mm. Um, yeah, it it would have been... Like, a few contenders. Yeah, it would have been like one of those rare moments when there are two foreign language film performances nominated in Best Actress. 
I think the only times that happened was 66 and 76. Yeah, with 1966, it's Ida Kaminska and Anouk Aimi, and then in 1976, it's Marie-Christine Parrault and Dave Ullman. Yeah, Yeah, maybe it was. Maybe they saw two two French actresses. That's too much. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, I think we were just afforded with a nomination for Convention in Wallace. So so do you want to talk about this this Best Actress lineup? So... um... As you know, I, I'm doing my, my best actress ranking, um, so I don't want to go too much into detail how I rank them because in maybe 20 years, I might um, <laughs> be one of them. Um, but to be honest, I also cannot entirely be entirely sure at the moment, so I really need to, with the other four, I really need to talk from memory. Um, in general, I think it was a strong lineup. I think it's interesting that for, I think Marion Cotillard and Helen Mirren, if I'm not wrong, they hit all the, the precursor awards, so it's interesting that they both left out for for others so you just sense that there was a lot of, there was a lot of passion behind uh, Emmanuel Weaver and Corinne Wallace. Corinne Wallace to be honest I cannot really say too much at the moment because I think that might probably be the <clears throat> sorry be the most difficult performance to review here because you know that she was six years old when she did this movie so you really have to wonder how much acting went into this Personally, I only want to judge what's on the screen. For example, with Tatum O'Neill uh, in Paper Moon, uh, it's well known that they, were, they did like up to 70 takes to get it right. But um, I don't want to judge this. I, don't want, I only want to judge what's on the screen, and that's great. And in the case of Corinne Wallace, what's on the screen is great, but it's just so difficult to probably judge this as an acting performance. So I really... This is a performance where I really need to to watch it probably again a couple of times to really make up my mind how I evaluate this. Um, Naomi Watts, I remember it was a very physical performance, but maybe a little bit like Emmanuel Riva that there's really not a lot of character. I, I know that she, I think she spends most of the time of the of the running time of the movie lying in bed or crying and suffering. So again, it's another performance where you have to where I have to applaud the physicality of the role and how she threw herself into it and how she, honestly she portrayed this but again you have to to ask yourself um how deep is the performance how deep is the character work here and I remember I liked Jennifer Lawrence very much obviously uh, much too young for the part but uh, I think she I think she was great so and I really don't mind her being an Oscar winner Jessica Chastain was also great. Um, I was surprised it's not the largest part and also not a very deep role. So we don't really get a lot of insight into her character, but really just follow her along on this journey. Um, But she does this extremely well. And I think there's really a sense that we get to know this woman. And of course, we talked about Emmanuel Rivas. So these are just uh, so these are my five cent on on the category. I cannot say at the moment who I would pick at the winner. It would probably be between Jessica Jennifer and Emmanuel. Yeah, um, I am in love with this lineup. Um, not because I think those five are like um, ultimately the best of the best ever, but it's just that these are really diverse performances and. It just so happens that this is the only time ever where, like, my personal top five in Best Actress matches the Oscars top five, 
for Best Actress. So, um, yeah, I mean, props to Fox Searchlight for campaigning Covenjani in lead. I mean, for other uh, companies would have definitely campaigned her in supporting. That would have been so fraudulent, I would say. Yeah. And yeah, going back to Marion Cotillard, that was weird because she just came off. Uh, yeah, Helen Mirren just came off from 2006 and Marion Cotillard 2007 was winners. And yet they find uh, they missed here. Um, Marion got all of the precursors and missed. Meanwhile, she missed all of the precursors in 2014 and got in for two days, one night. Um, yeah, I am also I'm also going with memory. <laughs> um, another another thing where as much as we like to trash the academy, usually that so sometimes we have to remember that sometimes they do pretty great things. So. When we were all wondering, oh, would the fifth nominee be Jennifer Aniston and Cake or Amy Adams and Big Eyes, uh, which in both cases would be uh, the Academy says no, it's <laughs> yeah, and then which is a great nomination. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, they do have their inspired moments once in a while. Um, in as much, I think yeah, it's just a push and pull of inspired and then dull, and but I think this decade specifically. We've had some pretty inspired choices, whether eventually we like them or not. Yeah. So, I. Uh, well, how about in directing and original screenplay? Do you think Amour was really in the conversation to win any of those? Oh, actually, can you remind me who the other nominees were? So, in directing, it's uh, Michael Haneke, oh. Ben Zeitlin, uh, Ang Lee, David Russell, and Steven Spielberg. And then original screenplay, it's Amour, Django Unchained, Zero Dark Thirty, Flight, and Moonrise Kingdom. Okay. Um, but just so, did you now say who you would pick as best actress? Did you? Did you? Oh. Um, my ranking would be um. One Riva, two probably Watts, three. Lawrence for Chastain, five Wallace. Okay, yeah, but yeah, but uh, I really think that's the kind of lineup where even the fifth nominee is still a very worthy nominee. So just because somebody is fifth doesn't mean that uh, that she's bad or didn't deserve it. Um, so directing, so I remember, yeah, of course, with uh, Ben Affleck being snubbed and still winning all the the precursor awards, this was uh, a really great category because it was such a nail biter because you had no idea where this would go. Um, personally, I'm happy that Ang Lee got it. Um, I think he's the kind of director who deserves to have two Oscars. And he did a great job um, with Life of Pi. Um, I remember Link. I thought Lincoln was also a great uh, Spielberg movie. I probably wouldn't pick it for directing. I think it was, a, in most cases, a very conventional biopic um, that got, mo got most of the strengths from the screenplay. And the acting, um, but also um, Silver Linings Playbook is also not the kind of movie where I would think the director has to win. Um, so Ben Zeidlin and Michael Haneke, they were both very inspired uh, nominations. I think Ben Zeidlin did uh, a great job um, creating this feeling. And we already talked about Haneke, how he has his own style. Um, I don't think that Haneke really had a... I don't suppose that he had a chance to win. Um, 
I think this is the kind of nomination that the dire directing branch gives, but when all academy members vote, I think that they, as a group, then go for the maybe a little bit more obvious, which you have in Life of Pi, where just a lot more is happening and a lot more visuals are presented on the screen. So I think that's what the whole academy body prefers. But I don't, I don't think that Amur really had a big chance outside of foreign language film. In, in original screenplay, uh, well, of course, Flight and maybe doesn't flight truly doesn't need an oscar um <laughs> yes it doesn't yeah django unchained um again it's also been a long time since i saw it but i suppose quentin tarantino is the kind of writer that the academy also doesn't mind giving him uh, another oscar um and again i would say that probably for screenplay the story probably feels too simple to I think that the Academy is fine with nominating it, but when it comes to picking a winner, I think the probably story feels too, just feels too simple to, to pick it for a win. So I think um, for a language film was obviously a lock um, with it being nominated for best picture as well and all these other categories. Um, for best actress, it had an outside shot um, that we talked about. Um, I know a lot of people were saying that Emmanuel Reaper could upset. In the end, Jennifer Lawrence's win was probably given right from the start and probably also won with a very comfortable lead. And yeah, so I think foreign language film was was its big chance to win and it got that. Yeah, I think with directing Ang Lee's win um, really goes in line with what we have seen this decade as the best directing goes to the biggest technical achievement. I mean, I think the discrepancy was this year. I mean, people were predicting 1917 and we got Parasite. Yay. Yeah. Um, for directing. And then with original screenplay, I was actually predicting Zero Dark Thirty at the time. I thought they were going to go with... I think they were going to... I thought they were going to go with the best picture front runner from the group. But, yeah, they went with... Django. Yeah, I actually don't remember who I predicted in that category. No, I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think we are both in agreement that Amour was definitely winning this, hands down. Um, now I think it's time for us to pay some attention to the nominees. So the other nominees were Kontiki from Norway, No from Chile. A Royal Affair from Denmark and Warwich from Canada. I am so happy that you uh, also watched all these four. Uh, which one do you want to discuss first? Um, you want to start with Norway? All right. So Kontiki, it premiered at Toronto, was nominated for Golden Globe, distributed by the Weinstein Company. Um, Pre-Me Too, that really helps in award season. Yeah. Um, and then this film is also interesting because it was filmed in both Norwegian and English. So they submitted the Norwegian version for the Oscars, but in an international release, they played the English version. So uh, they were filming the movie scenes in twice. No, no, no. Uh, they filmed it twice. Oh, so, for example, that. they... Yeah. So... And I saw the Norwegian yeah. version. <laughs> 
What do you think? So you you saw the Norwegian version? Yeah, with the subtitles. But yeah. even then, they have some. I... Even then, they have some scenes in English actually. Yes. Uh, what do you think of Kontiki? Um, so first of all, if I ever call the movie TikTok, um, please excuse me. Um, I liked it very much. Um, I can already say that I liked all the five movies that were nominated this year. Um, I think it's a very good um, kind of adventure movie. It combines history with this. Um, so it tells us something that really happened. So it's it has it's not a message message picture, but it. Um, presents some kind of history and retells it. Um, so I didn't actually know um, about this whole journey that these men took. So it was very interesting from that point of view. Um, being on the ocean in on just uh, this small this small piece of wood um, would be an absolute nightmare for me. So this movie did give me some anxiety. So I actually sometimes have nightmares where I'm swimming in the, in the middle of the ocean and have so this is really, and also everything with sharks and stuff like this, this is really a nightmare for me. So this movie had had so a very lot of, so really a lot of tension. Um, I think at the beginning it was a very conventional movie. So this whole journey where he wants to um, prove his theory, um, how he deals with his family, how he finds financing for his project. Um, I think this. From personally, for me, it took a little bit too long. I think it really takes 40 minutes for the movie to really start. Um, but all the scenes out there on the ocean, I think they are extremely well made. All the scenes with the sharks. Um, as I said, these scenes have a lot of tension. The scene with the whale, um, another scene that I think is very beautiful before I personally think it turns a little bit silly when the one guy throws the harpoon at it. Um, it um, it's very well well made from a technical point of view. It, it doesn't emotionally involve me as much as Amour did. Um, even though there are only six characters on the boat, I had, to be honest, I had problems somehow telling them apart. Um, I, th I don't think that any of them really had his own character. There were only just these six guys who were on the boat and had this journey and I wasn't really, I didn't really feel for any of them. Um, I think the ending was a bit, um, a prop when with the letter from his wife uh, where I think where they basically reach their destiny and then he has this letter from his wife where she basically tells him that she leaves him or something like this this felt a little bit cruel um, but um, I think from a technical point of view it's very well made uh, you really get this feeling of isolation on the ocean um, I also don't want to compare it too much with these big budget Hollywood movies um, they would obviously at some point had better um, visual effects. I think the scene when they try to cross the riff at the end and you see the boat riding the wave that looked some looked a little bit like a bad computer game. But uh, I don't want to uh, to blame the movie for this since um, it's always so easy to compare movies with these big Hollywood productions. And of course, there's just a whole different kind of budget involved here. Um, but I think overall, it did a really good job. I think the only, yeah, I really liked it very much. It had a lot of tension. It really taught me something I didn't know yet. Um, I think the only scene that I actually actively disliked was the scene with the the the, the bird. I think it was a parrot. Parrot. Uh, the English word a parrot. A parakeet. No, what? I think both works. Um, the parrot and where when the parrot is eaten by the shark. I don't know that. <laughs> it reminded oh. me of. <laughs> I think Deep Blue Sea, some kind of a cheap uh, shark horror movie. I think there's a similar scene in this, and it probably doesn't. 
it doesn't make me like a person where I say I really laughed out loud at that moment. <laughs> but um, overall, I, I thought it was a really great movie. What did what did you thought? Uh, this is the last film that I had to watch for this podcast with the nominees. Uh, I was in the impression when I saw the poster that this was some fantasy based in the water, and it turned out it was actually like a real thing. I loved it. I think it is a great addition to the historical adventure uh, genre of film. It's just, I think it's just deliciously made. It's such an experience. It's so engaging. Um, not really a lot of strong character work, but I think it benefits from really focusing on the experience of being on a boat. But I do agree, it is a rude cruel thing to be hungry for 120 days only to find out that your wife left you but that <laughs> happened so you know but yay you proved your theory but yeah this is really engrossing and i i kind of see why the weinstein company picked this up because there i think there is a potential for this film to cross um international market and in fact they went they also had the English version, so they were really, I think, um, aiming for it to make it in international scene. I think it is it is an engrossing film, I would say. Um, what about Warwitch, which was premiered in Berlin, won Best Actress for Rachel Monza, and was one of the National Board of Review Top 5. Yeah, so Warwitch, this was the last movie that I saw. And even when I read about, uh, I read uh, before what it was about, and then I already knew, okay, this movie will most likely destroy me. And I have to say it did. I, this is really, this em emotionally, this movie devastated me. I think movies about the horrors of war, child soldiers, all, the all these horrible things that are happening around the world, and in this case, of course, specifically in this place, um, totally devastated me. Um, also on a personal level, since um, um, our son is also from an African country um, that was devastated by war, so um, I don't don't want to say I have a personal connection to this, but it just affects me to um, just affects me um, maybe diff very strongly. And yeah, I have to say, I think it's an extremely well-made movie. Maybe I think it's from a technical level, it's maybe not on the same level as Amour, um, the way it is made, but it affects me much more, I have to say. Um, I think it's a devastating story that throws you right into this whole horror. I mean, it takes about one minute for the, these rebels to come and... Um, attack the village and and grab all the children and take take them with them make the children kill their parents um and then of course they are we see how they are spending their days as these child soldiers these are stories we hear about but obviously we never see things like this and so to really so in this movie really shows you how this is um the scenes with the ghost that she is hallucinating about um pretty horrifying um the ending when she buries her father and her mother um, symbolically and says go away and this uh, it's almost in tears at this moment um, and yeah this this movie really affected me very much and really destroyed me and I think this 
was an absolutely amazing movie and yeah one that really should be seen by a lot of people yeah um, i am so happy that this film got in not because of my personal um thoughts about the film but just because i think this is a story that needs to be told and must be seen and you know it's not just that it's it's also a well-told story um i do have some nitpicks with the film I think it started really strong with, you know, the story. I think it's a, vis- a very visceral story about um, captivity and, you know, being desensitized to violence. Um, there, there was a part in the film where I think it dropped the ball. That was when the, the film focused on the romance. So that kind of lost me a bit. But then I think it got it. It took me back when um, that's gone, and she's now fighting for her to come back to the village and really do everything right. Um, so it it wasn't an even experience for me, but I don't begrudge the nomination because I think there are some really strong points in this film, and I see why this made it in. Yeah, um, I I understand what you mean about um. The romance. Um, I also think it came a little bit sudden that they decided to leave the two of them and and run away from from this warlord. Um, but I think the romance itself worked for me very well because just like in Amour, it was never sentimental or tried to sweeten up. So I think the movie made it very good that these were still two very still two children who clung to each other and who had to grow up way faster than they should and had experienced all these horrible things and now even at their young age they were all now they felt already like grown-ups and felt the need to 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 engage in 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 this romance and maybe was even mentally forced into this by thinking this is something that they had to do and yeah as you said it didn't last very of course this happiness didn't last very long when she was again taken back um but yeah, I think overall it's also the shortest movie of the five, and I think it had a. I still think it had a very good flow and um, really managed to tell this, this devastating story, um, and really made you made you look and dared you to look away from the from the things it was showing to you. Yeah, definitely, it is a quite an eye opening experience, I must say. Um... Which one do you want to discuss next? No or a royal affair? Um, oh, let's just take a royal affair. Okay. <laughs> so Berlin premiere, best screenplay and best actor for Mikkel Boyer-Fusgard. Um, I think out of all, out of these five, this had the more consistent awards present outside of a more. It got nominated for Golden Globe and Critics' Choice. What do you think of a royal affair? Oh, yeah. Um, so this is actually the movie that I was talking about earlier when I, I mentioned the music. Um, um, I just I, I don't want to say that the music is very memorable. I just think that the whole this royal affair is the closest thing in this lineup that we have to a true Hollywood production. So it really has this feeling of these kind of 1960s period costume dramas like um, Anne of the South Days or Man for All Seasons. Because um, it really from a technical level it can really compete uh, with Hollywood I think on every level it has these costumes art direction sweeping cinematography 
um, the kind of screenplay that you expect from a, from these kind of costume dramas and prestige actors. Um, it's probably the the most unchallenging movie of the five. So it does it's not the movie doesn't really want to make you think in any way, or but it really just shows you what has happened at this specific period of time. It really introduces you to the particular characters. But uh, personally, um, I'm a big fan of these uh, period costume dramas. So this was is actually right, uh, totally my kind of new movie. Um, and I also think it was an interesting story. It, it reminded me a little bit of The Favorite, that you have this royal character who is influenced by the people around him because he, um, because he has some mental problems and the people around him use this to their advantage. Um, so yeah, I think, I think the acting was overall also very good. Um, I think Alicia Vikander, sometimes I think she was a little bit bland, but uh, overall I think she did very well. Um, the two male actors also uh, worked very well. And I think the scene at the end, his, um, his execution um, is also one of the most memorable moments of the five movies for me. So when he first slips on the blood and then he looks up and he sees how many people are there and are really there to watch him being killed. I think that really, this was a great moment. A really a memorable moment rather. Yeah, I think this, I think A Royal Affair is probably the most um, conventional yes. of the choices here in the nominations. And I actually remember predicting this for costume design nomination didn't happen. <laughs> um, but I predicted it because I think it's really up their alley, these uh, uh, big costumes. And yeah, I think this is a really, uh, it's well told. Like you said, it's not challenging and it doesn't change anything to uh, the period drama storytelling no. conventions okay. that we know. But I think it works just well. And um, I think the challenge of some period dramas is that sometimes you feel that these people are in a dress up. And I did not feel that way with A Royal Affair. I believed the environment. I believed the setting. Um, I think it's strongly crafted. I mean, out of the three, I mean, you have future Oscar winner Alicia Vikander just a few years after this. And then uh, you have Mads Mikkelsen who, you know, might, I think he can get a nomination somewhere in the future. For me, my favorite performance is uh, Mikhail Bofuskart. Um, which was the king. I just, I'm so interested with all of his choices. Um, yeah, yeah, no, totally agree. I, I think that's probably why I also thought of the favorite, where you have the central character who has these constant mood swings, and you never know what to, what to expect from from this person because he or she is constantly behaving differently. So this is what drives the movie forward and keeps you a little bit on the edge here. Yeah, so I, I'm fine with it. You know, getting in and yeah, fine with it. No, yeah, um, for me, um, the movie said, okay, I want to be a big period costume drama, and it, for for me, it totally succeeded on this level. Um, so, so it doesn't pretend to be more. It doesn't pretend to be some kind of message movie. And I assume that sometimes we think that the foreign language ca film category has to be one where you have to find more of these deeper movies with a lot of deep meaning or a very um, dark story or things like this. And so personally for me, it's refreshing to find this movie that really is just a big old, like big old Hollywood costume drama, but made in, in, in Denmark. 
Yeah, um, I think that's the, <laughs> I would admit, that's one of the challenges of covering this category is that there's a lot of dark, theme-heavy films about politics and history. Like, okay, yeah. uh, I need to space it out so well <laughs> to watch these films. Um, yeah, but Royal Affair is just a well-crafted story that um, doesn't bother me at all. And it's presence <laughs> here, and I it works well. And I understand why it won Best Screenplay and Actor at Berlin, because it is really well made. So how about No from Chile's, which was a Cannes premiere and National Board of Review top five as well? Mm, that's another um, movie I liked very much. Um, told um, a historic story I didn't know too much about. Um, so this was very interesting for me. I li liked the style of the movie very much. So it was shot in this, um, I don't know what it, what it's called technically, but it was so that it was made to f look a little bit like an old home movie. Um, I think this worked very well for the style. Um, it was interesting to have this, in, this insight into this whole advertising campaign around the election. Um, what I thought was a little bit, Uh, or what what it lacked a little bit for me was more context. So I I'm aware of the whole um, situation in Chile and Pinochet, um, but it sometimes felt uh, a little bit hard to follow for me. So you always have this talk about people disappearing, people being executed, and then you have this campaign that is actively trying to remove him from office with this yes campaign. Uh, no, no, the no campaign, sorry, um, the no campaign trying to remove him from office and you have a couple of threatening phone calls and stuff like this, but really not more. And I'm not, I, ha I sometimes had a feeling that they made it seem a little bit too easy. Um, but I think overall it was a very engaging story. I think it was a great idea to include all these old historic um, clips, these commercials that they made. So you get a sense of how what really happened there. I mean, this, these cheesy uh, yes commercials with uh, like our dear leader and stuff like this. Um, but even there, I would have liked it to be a little bit more involved because personally, I didn't see too much difference between the commercials from the yes and the no. They seemed very similar to me at some point. So I didn't really get the sense why the no campaign was so much better when they, they, the people in yes campaign always said, oh, he's they are from advertising and they know what they are doing and they know how to do it. That's I didn't really get the impression from the movie here at some points. So I would have liked to get a little bit more insight there. And another thing that bothered me a little bit at the beginning, they always talk about, oh, we need to fill 15 minutes of airtime and we don't have anything. And they talk about this at the beginning. And then at some point, they, it just stops and they, they, they make all these commercials and they apparently it's no longer a problem. And, We're not really involved in the make. I think we're not really involved in the making of process. Um, but overall, I think it's a, it's a great movie, and I think it's um, shining light on another situation that a lot of people don't know about. I really enjoyed this film a lot. I must say, I can also say maybe I loved it. Uh, close to really loving it. I think it's so involving in telling this story about politics on a different angle. I don't think I've ever seen a story about politics focusing on the advertising side of it. Yes. And right now we see, especially with social media, that 
that's probably the the deal breaking factor now is how I mean it's a, it has always been that way but now more than ever uh, advertising is the deal breaker uh, in politics now and it's just so refreshing how the film really decided not to be a traditional t uh, retelling of the story um, it I think it handles politics very well and as someone from, you know, I studied mass communication. So anything about the power of media, like, yes, <laughs> I love it. Um, and then you also have Gal Garcia Bernal, which is like a strong center of this film. The no jingle is still in my mind. Yeah. I am Chile. still singing it. <laughs> Chile. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Um, so, I watched this around like, five days ago or something i'm still singing it like a while ago so i think it worked maybe that's why they won it sticks in your mind so um um as you just mentioned um gal garcia banel um when you look at the five movies we actually have a lot of um, award-winning performances in all of those or well-known actors so what uh what would you take away as the you the most memorable or impressive performances from those five movies because you mentioned that um the silver bear the silver um the the, the acting win in berlin and actually the leading late um, the leading actress from warwich also won acting in berlin yes so we have those we um, have big names like alicia vikanda and Ganel garcia banel we have award winners from amur so there's quite um there's actually quite some impressive acting here i think i'm gonna stick with emmanuel here but um, yeah, because I think Kontiki, the acting wasn't really the focal point of that film. And then like I said, No and A Royal Affair and Warwich are so reliant on the acting of its leads. I think Kontiki is the only one that's a, dis a, dis a discrepancy here because it's more about the epic filmmaking around it and this yes. adventure. But yeah. I'm going to stick with Emmanuel here. Yeah, also, I mean, I, I don't think I can pick a number one, but I also would say that the, the trio from Amour and the, the two the two leading actors from Warwich, so um, the, the leading actress and the actor who played um, the magician, um, I think those five are the most memorable for me. It is a really strong lineup, I guess. So, uh, yeah. I think we can go qu uh, quickly to the shortlisted films. Uh, the other films that were shortlisted are Beyond the Hills from Romania, The Deep from Iceland, The um, Sister from Switzerland, and The Intouchables from France. I think The Intouchables is the biggest snub in this lineup. It was nominated for Globe, BAFTA, Critics' Choice, it's a worldwide box office hit. It earned $426 million worldwide. And... Uh, they even made a remake, yeah. didn't they? I yeah, they, they, made, remake. they made a lot of remakes, yeah. but last year they made one with uh, Kevin Hart and Brian Cranston. We didn't see that. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen it too. Um, uh, what do you think of The Untouchables? Um, because you've said you said you watched yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's been a long time ago. I mean, it's the kind of, I think it, if I remember it correctly, it's some, it's, it's the kind of feel-good movie in a way. It has a very serious, um, serious um, pretense, but it 
then makes you kind of feel good about the whole thing. It has this unlikely friendship, um, how they develop. It has, um, it shows you how each of the different characters develop themselves, how they become, become better persons through this friendship. So yeah, I can totally understand why this is, um, why this was a huge surprise that this was nominated because you, this is the kind of movie that this feel good story that would make you, yeah, that would make it so easy to nominate it. So I actually don't ha really have an explanation here. Maybe it's because we, Amour was also in French. That may, maybe Academy members thought one movie in French is enough. Um, but personally, I have no real explanation why it was snubbed. I mean, I can understand why Amour won all the awards because at the end you go, award bodies, they probably go with a more prestige um, movie and Amour feels much more like this kind of the, the movie, the kind of movie you want to award. But uh, The Untouchables certainly feels like the movie you would want to nominate. Yeah, it, it still puzzles me because, you know, I, I was thinking maybe it's because it's a comedy, but then it got all of the nominations already. So like maybe it already overcame that genre bias. Um, it, it, I, I don't understand because it's so watchable, I guess. And just, I think there's this purity and the enjoyment that you can have in watching this film. I honestly have no idea. I think it's a mystery. I am surprised that it got not, it did not get nominated. I mean, I read a lot on the internet that apparently a lot of people also very strongly dislike it. So I'm not entirely sure. Maybe this, I, I don't know how it was back then when it was released, but it seems that it's the kind of movie that for a lot of people doesn't age too well. I think it's the kind of movie that people are either passionate about or really hate. Maybe this was too different. Maybe this was not, maybe that's why what they could not overcome, but not really sure. Yeah. So I think that's the most significant one here. And um, the other nominees, uh, I'm just going to go quickly. Uh, the deep was, was fine. It's like a rower uh, Titanic. It's about, a fishing boat sinking and then the one survivor making his way to the land you know surviving the very cold atlantic ocean that was fine and then as against with sister it's about a boy who is stealing uh, skiing equipment at a skiing resort again it's also fine and beyond the hills which i just finished like three hours ago <laughs> the last time I watched for this it's about like um, a very conservative monastery in Romania uh, this was interesting because it was directed by Christian Munju which um, his last the last film that he directed that was submitted by Romania for foreign language film was four months three weeks two days and that was a controversial snub so I don't know if this is the Academy trying to make up <laughs> for him, for not nominating him. Um, but yeah, um, I read some articles about this, some people saying dissatisfaction because apparently from the nine that were shortlisted, seven of those are from Europe. So I think um, it kind of shows how Eurocentric I mean, excuse me, <laughs> how Eurocentric uh, this category is. There, uh, there is probably not, in, there's not enough attention given to Asian films and African films and films in the Americas. 
Um, but interestingly, the only two films that were not from Europe were both nominated, which were No and Warwich. So those are our shortlisted films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in the case of Warwich, you can say, I mean, it's, it's a Canadian production. So what if what would have happened if it had been an African production? Would have then would have been nominated then as well? Yeah, that's an interesting oh. question because. At the time, Canada was on a roll with Ansandi in 2010 and Monsieur Latsar in 2011. So um, they were on a roll in this nomination. So I mean, it I gives would... the movie much more exposure, obviously, when it comes from Canada than when it comes from an African country. Yeah. Probably much more resources for, for campaigning. I mean, I know that Warwick also won a lot of um, Canadian uh, movie awards, but I don't know if, yes. they took, if, if they took place before the Oscars or after, so... I cannot comment if this created some buzz. It practically swept in the Canadian... I forgot. The, is it Canadian Screen Awards? I think uh, it is. It practically swept everything except for a few awards. So, yeah. Um, uh, just a quick mention to the other nominees at, the, uh, at this year's Oscars that were also not in English are Five Broken Cameras from Palestine, Israel, France documentary feature and the gatekeepers from israel france belgium germany documentary feature again this is excluding amour this is a very american oscars i would say i mean just like any other oscar year it's very american yes very english (laughs) yes but i know there's always a lot of criticism about this but i mean to be honest it's, it's an american award so i don't fault them for honoring american movies yeah that's 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 the thing, but I think they're trying to shape to shift their identity this past few um, years, with, and then yeah, I it think ended they, up with Parasite. Yeah, <laughs> and that, that was a great surprise. Yeah, yeah. So now let's go to the other submissions. So there were seventy-one films submitted. The first timer here is Kenya, talking about African cinema. They submitted Nairobi Half Life, and Cambodia submitted for the first time in eighteen years. Um, do you remember any submissions that might have probably factored in this race? Aside from, <laughs> to be honest, to be honest, very sorry, but uh, no. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just gonna do a quick rundown since I haven't seen any of these films, but I just did some research. Um, Barbara from Germany won Best Director at Berlin and National Board of Review Top Five. Uh, Caesar Must Die. Golden Bear in um, Berlin, Pieta from South Korea, Golden Lion in Venice, um, Fill the Void from Israel, Best Actress from Venice. Um, and this is one interesting, no, no, let's go with two. Two interesting films for me are Blanca Nieves from Spain. This was a black and white silent film. We're just coming off of a Best Picture win for a black and white silent film, which is The Artist. And the following year, they submitted Blanca Nieves. And this film is apparently a story about Snow White. So this year, we saw two Snow White films nominated at the Oscars, both for costume design, Snow White and the Huntsman and Mirror Mirror. So there were some people who predicted maybe Blanca Nieves would make it in. And then The Hypnotist from Sweden. I don't remember this having a lot of buzz, but it's just interesting that it was directed by Lassie Hallstrom, which is an Oscar nominee, and starring Lena Olin, which is an Oscar nominee as well. So, you know, once in a while, you have these uh, submissions with Oscar nominees. 
<laughs> no, they're getting submitted. Yeah, no, to be honest, I I don't know how um, the, the, the best foreign language lineup that year, how, how it ended up the way it did. But as I said, I think all of these five movies are great. And I cannot really blame any of them for being nominated. It's a nice variety of different pictures. You have um, you have um, contemporary drama. You have costume drama. You have um, movie. You have some kind of message picture. You have um, movies with historical background. So I think it's a very nice and diverse group of nominees. Yeah. So now finally to the films that were not submitted. There is this one film that is really um, raised a lot of questions during this awards race, which is. Rust and Bone. So it was nominated for foreign language film at Golden Globe, BAFTA, and Critics' Choice. Marion Cotilla was nominated for Golden Globe, BAFTA, Critics' Choice, and SAG. This is the film that really, I mean, this question has always been popping up, but what do you think of the one film per country rule? Because this, the existence of Rust and Bone in this award season really made people question this rule at the foreign language film category at the Oscars? Again, very difficult, but I think in a way it probably makes sense because at some point they, they have to make the, the selection of which movies um, to shortlist, which movies to nominate, and obviously the more movies are submitted, the more difficult it will become to, to, to handle this process. So, um, I mean, in a way, you can say that it, it only underlines, again, how American the Oscars are, that every country is only allowed to submit one movie. But for me, it makes sense to have some kind of rule how to, to reduce the number of movies that are submitted. And, and of course, there's also always the question, who submits these movies? And of, if every country has their own committee where they decide which movie to submit, there will always be controversy but if each country decides to submit like two three four five movies will probably become difficult um and then of course there's the question should um, only one movie per country be allowed to be nominated or should it be open so that also two movies from the same country could be nominated in the same year would I mean, if we would probably open a whole lot, a whole new discussion, and we would, but they would probably need to re change the whole structure of the foreign language film um, process. Um, cannot say that I have the, the perfect answer to this, but I do see the, the difficulties that arise in the rights here when you have obviously thousands of movies from around the world competing for this one award, and somehow you have to reduce the number of them that are being submitted. Um, but I can also see the that the rule maybe doesn't make total sense. It's it's the same with actors when you say that only that an actor is only allowed to be nominated in a, in the for best leading actor, for example, for one performance, even if the actor has two performances that year. Why should he not be nominated for those performances? Um, I think difficult difficult rules and yeah, don't have a perfect answer here. Um, yeah, I I see I see both sides. I guess with um I think with on one hand it really keeps everything like on a playing field because for example like a film industry like France can submit so many films and yet you can see like what an African film maybe submit just one film and maybe it can crowd out and maybe you can see like 
if the, if this rule doesn't happen, like maybe you would have five nominees in foreign language film, all of them from France or something like that. Um, but then at the same time, the selection process itself is very political because the selection committee is handled by the government that of the country. I mean, they're, they're, they're the ones that are organizing the committee. So there is a certain level of politics involved. And it's never perfect. I, th I don't think we will ever have a perfect awards. So like a rule like this, it's just like, you know, it's double-edged. Um, yeah, and I mean, just when you look at the nominees this year, I mean, Amour is a movie about, a, a, it takes place in Paris. It's in French. It's about an old French couple, but it won the Oscar for Austria. So you can basically also uh, say here, does this even make sense? I mean, I understand the, the reason behind it when, you, when it comes to financing and producing, but there again, you have to ask the question. I mean, it's, it's a very French movie, but it, it's, it's an Oscar win for Austria. You can also wonder how, if, if the rules all make sense. Yeah, and I think um, Hanukkah was actually already affected by the rules before because Cachet was disqualified for being in French. Uh, be, it being an Austrian submission. So yeah, the rules are probably bound to be questioned, but at the same time, they've got to have rules. To, I mean, I don't, I don't say, order. yeah, I mean, I don't say that an Austrian movie cannot be in French or that, uh, that in this specific case, there's obviously people from also from different countries involved and financing comes from different countries. But um, I think when people, I'm not, I don't think that when Oscar voters, when they fill out their ballot, if they really realize, if they think, oh, I vote for Amour, this Austrian movie, I don't, probably for all of them, it's probably a French movie. Um, what do you think of Marion Cotillard's performance in this film? Uh, another one I haven't seen in a very long time. Um, when they are snubbed, they, are, they usually when they are snubbed, they drop from my conscience. Yes, um, no, um, to be serious, it's been a long time, but I remember that she was pretty great, and I actually assumed that she would be nominated. Um, I think I expected Emmanuel Riva and uh, Marion Cotillard to both be nominated. I thought I didn't see Corinne Janae Wallace coming, um, so I was definitely surprised by this and also disappointed because Marion Cotillard is for me also one of the great actresses that we see working today, um, who really disappears in all her roles. And I'm always happy when she's part of an award season. Yeah, I remember her being a really haunt, a haunting presence in Rust and Bone. I mean, the film is not really about her per se. It's about Matthias Skunard's character, but she is a really haunting presence. And this would have made for a very strong second nomination. And it would have been really interesting if she was nominated for La Vie en Rose and for Two Days, One Night, and then also this. So that would have made her be nominated for Best Actress three times, all for foreign language film performances. So that would have been an interesting record, but, yeah. you know. Yeah, and I think it's all, again, it's a powerhouse performance from these couple, Cotillard and Schoonarts. Um, I can't remember much the film surrounding them <laughs> so i cannot say if um i would have nominated it in foreign language film so yeah i think the other films that were kind of like in the conversation but then were not submitted are holy motors from france uh lawrence anyways from canada the paradise trilogy in australia like someone in love from france and japan 
Tabu from Portugal. Portugal is <laughs> Portugal has had the most submissions without a nomination. So come on. Portugal is kind of due. And then post Tenebrous Lux from Mexico. Um Apps from Greece, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos. And this is a quick shout out to Love is All You Need from Denmark. It premiered at Venice. It was directed by Suzanne Bier, which just won two years ago uh, in A Better World. And it stars Pierce Brosnan <laughs> and Trine Dirkholm, also from A Royal Affair. So I think Love is All You Need is one of the shortlisted at Denmark. But then they immediately went, uh, immediately, but ultimately they went with A Royal Affair. So yeah, I think Rust and Bone is like the biggest um, exclusion because of this rule. Yeah, yeah, so, I, think yeah. Um, I think it makes total sense for Denmark to go with a royal affair. I mean, I'm sure that these committees, when they submit movies, they also just think about the likelihood of being nominated. And they probably assume that something like a royal affair, this big costume drama has has a good chance of being nominated and they were right obviously i mean that's probably also why i mean from germany i don't think it's that much anymore but there was a time when we basically only submitted movies movies that took place during the second world war because we also assumed that's the best chance we have for a nomination i don't think that happens so much anymore but i think committees they really do take into account what do americans and oscar voters want to see i did notice that trend <laughs> with german <laughs> submissions like okay Let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So now let us go to like the question <laughs> to conclude this. Um, we've talked about this already in length, but considering the other nominees and the film itself, do you think Amour was a deserving winner? Um, I think it's a deserving winner. Um, so I'm not saying if it would have been my pick, but uh, as a movie, I think it's a very deserving choice. It's um, a fantastic movie from, a, as we already discussed, it's a simple story, simple movie, but still perfect on a technical level with perfect performances, um, a haunting story, a very peculiar feeling and atmosphere that's very unique to this movie and just a great piece of filmmaking. So for me, a very deserving winner. Yeah, and I would agree. I think this is a, one of the most inspired Best Picture nominations um, in quite a while, if not ever. I am so glad it made it in. And of course, definitely Best Foreign Language Film because, yeah, of all the previously mentioned reasons, it is just a um, really memorable story uh, and how it was told, basically, and with remarkable direction and performances and writing. I mean, this is like, of course, it is a deserving winner for me. And um, another question would be, since Amour was basically sweeping it, if Amour was out of the conversation, which do you think of the four would have won? Ooh, the four. Mm, I suppose Warwitch or, or Royal Affair. But totally guessing. So I'm... So as we said, I think in the foreign language film, they sometimes tend to go for a little bit darker movies or with some more background or stuff like this. So this might be, it might benefit Warwick and A Royal Affair because it's the easiest to, to watch and to to digest of the foreign movies. So it's, I think, I think one of those two. I'm, I'm going to cheat and say that without Amour, 
the Intouchables gets in, <laughs> and it wins. Yeah, I, yeah. Since you said of the four, if you, if you say who would be in, in, in <laughs> yeah, I'm so sorry, I broke my own rules. No, 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 no. <laughs> if 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 we had another nominee, I would also guess that the Intouchable would uh, be would get in, and yeah, I would also I would imagine it would win in that case. Yeah. It's kind of strange to think that it wasn't even nominated, but if, if it had been nominated, it would be the winner, but... I would say probably Contiki. Mm-hmm. If, if, if I limit myself to the four that were not Amour and not Intouchables, I think maybe Contiki, because it is, uh, it is the close to a grand production. Um, not saying that A Royal Affair is not grand, and then it's a genre film that would definitely engage viewers. It had the Weinstein comp- company backing it. Yeah, that's right. It was also like a box office success. And um, I saw some. I saw some articles that I'm going by um, memory here. That of course everyone was predicting Amour, but if it's not Amour, I saw some articles predicting Contiki. Okay. Yeah, you're right. I forgot about the Weinsteins. So yeah, the Weinsteins. As we should forget about yeah. the Weinsteins. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But um, yeah, you're right. It would probably give Contiki an edge. Yeah, it would also be plus. Yeah, you're right. It's. I mean, it's also. It's very easy to enjoy. You see it, and you see the them on the ocean. You see the sharks attack, and you see them doing this journey. Yeah, could also be the. Could also be easily the winner. I think that's because. All five of these movies were pretty great, so it's difficult to say who would be the runner-up. And each of the movies brings something different to the table. Yeah, I think out of these four, it's it's tough to call because Amor was definitely sweeping it, and its and its biggest competitor missed. Um, so yeah, we've watched these five. So I would like to indulge you. <laughs> And ranking these films from five to one, just a quick ranking. Let's compare each other's ranking, as we always do with Oscar fans. We rank things. Yeah, I rank so, everything. <laughs> yeah, I rank things in my pastime. What? So yeah, what's your number five? So my number five is no. Um, but again, I like all of these movies. It's really just um, how you have to rank them at some point. And I think it's a very engaging story. It tells um, something I didn't know before. It's mostly that at some points I'm not as involved emotionally or sometimes feel it's a little bit hard to follow the story is why I put it at number five. My number five is War Witch. Um, what's your number four? Um, my number four is Contiki. Um, again, it's um, I appreciate the, the grand sweeping style of it and the tension there. I think my main reason is that I don't really get emotionally involved in these characters that are presented. That's somehow missing for me. My number four is A Royal Affair. And what's your number three? Uh, my number three is A Royal Affair. Again, it's the probably the least challenging movie, as we already said, but uh, these kind of uh, big costume dramas, they're just not my thing. My number three is no. Um, I think it's just, um, <laughs> you know, when we talk about a dictatorship from the 1970s to the 1980s, like, what? What is that? Really? I can't, but you know, right now, 
dictatorships are in again. <laughs> so like, yeah, I definitely see that. So what's your number two? I'm interested. Yeah, so I have Amur and Vorich left. So um, if I'm honest, then I say Amur is probably the better piece of filmmaking since from a technical perspective and everything around the movie making. But if I were an Oscar voter, I would have voted for Warwitch simply because it devastates me on a level that none of the other movies did and affects me very deeply and really haunts me. As much as haunting as Amur is in its own way, um, Warwitch is for me the kind of movie that I would probably never forget. Even if it has maybe more flaws than Amur, but um, yeah, cannot always go with, um, sometimes have to go with your emotions. My number two is Contiki and my number one is Amour. So we never really matched. <laughs> so none of this matched. <laughs> yeah, but I think it just shows um, how um, really how different these five movies were and how everybody gets something else out of them. Yep, and that's the beauty of film is that it's not like there's a one, uh, one size fit all. I mean, you can have a specific story that uh, would impact you and it would be a different one for me, but... We, films impact us in the most different ways. So, yeah. No, yeah. and again, that's why I'm so happy that I'm that I'm here on your on on your podcast and that I um found these movies through your podcast. And I mean, I I, I had picked um the the um, I, I wanted to talk about the Amour here because I had already seen Amour, so I thought it's easier for me if I've already seen one and I actually didn't know anything about the other four. So I was um, very pleasantly surprised um to um to discover them and see how great they are all are. Yeah, and thank you so much, Dankeschön, for coming on board and watching all of these films. I know they aren't weren't they weren't really the easiest to find, but I'm so happy that we were able to talk about these films again. And as one of um, the first uh, bloggers that I have followed in my blogging life and Oscar life and Oscar following, I am so deeply humbled to be able to talk to you about this and. I'm so happy that you're happy. So yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was really great. Yeah. And can you tell again our listeners where can they find you and your work? Um, so you can find me on probably easiest on Twitter um, at, at Fritz and Oscars. Um, they find my, all my, obviously all my tweets, but also my profile where you can link directly to my blog, uh, Fritz and the Oscars. Yes, please do uh, um, follow him and read his blog because... Yeah, that's where it all started for me. And you can follow me at Carlos Ohano on Twitter and at One Inch Barrier. Yeah, follow him. Um, yeah. <laughs> and I just want to do a, like, a real a quick list of all the new applications that this podcast is available because apparently um, I've added a lot since the last time. So this podcast is now available on Acast, Blueberry, Bullhorn, Castro, Chartable, Deezer, Digital Podcast, Google Play Music, Himalaya, iHeartRadio, Listen Notes, Podlong, Podbean, Podcast Addict, Podcast Republic, Podchaser, Podknife, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And it will be available in more. So, I mean, you cannot escape this podcast anymore. So, um, yeah, and I would we were gonna work hard on putting this in more applications. I'm surprised that there are some applications that I don't know are already carrying this podcast. So yay! I hope everyone stay safe and stay healthy as they 
as we go along. Again, thank you so much for listening. I hope to see you next time. And together, let us break the one-inch barrier. Thank you.